the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. 
Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, and now up on iHeartRadio. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chickadee, Annie. And today, my guest co-host returning once again is State Florida Representative Mike Hill. Good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon, Annie. It's a great day. It is a great day in America. Oh, man, we've got ourselves a fantastic lineup here today, Mike. Uh, we've got starting off Pastor Daryl Scott. You see him up on TV all the time. He's one of the pastors to Donald Trump and with the the Trump campaign, uh, followed by Sandra Lee. She's the author of the book, uh, Dear Donald, Letters from a Loving Deplorable. And then Bill Meckler is going to be joining us. Uh, he has the 2020 Vision for America, followed by um, – Riley Walter of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we were going to have Gordon Chang on. Unfortunately, if you're listening in, I screwed up the interview. My fault. Somehow or other, when I was interviewing him, it was going to be something pre-recorded, put in here. Got my half of the conversation and none of his. So I deeply apologize. Gordon Chang did sit on the phone with me for half an hour today, and I messed up. So I'm going to try to see if I can re-interview him and do him on maybe next uh, Friday's show. So my fault, my bad. Uh, can't always be perfect, right, Mike? No, not at all. But you come close, <laughs> Annie. I try, I try. You know what, ever since uh, I had someone work on my computer last year, claimed he was a computer expert, advertises himself as that and everything. Uh, you know, I I do my research. I went onto the Internet and looked for, you know, people saying, you know, what type of work he does. And I saw only glowing reviews. Well, little did I know that he deleted all the bad ones <laughs> and I used him. And it crashed my system. And ever since then, I'm still finding glitches here and there in it. So during a pre-recorded interview, I'm going to have to figure out what went wrong and how we can do it the right way. <laughs> anyway. Oh, well. But, Mike, so much to talk about today. So much going on. Yes. And you have a great lineup, Annie. I I'm excited to listen to them, hear what they have to say. But there is so much going on in our nation right now. You know, first it was the COVID thing. Now it's kind of with the uh, rioting. And now they're talking about defunding police. And it, it almost seems like insanity is reigning right now. Um, but I think soon, sooner than later, the nation is going to come back to its senses, um, make sure that the left is not going to reign in this nation that instead we are a nation of the rule of law, we are a republic, not mob rule, and we're going to get back to things as normal. Well, hence the title that we have on today's show, America, Worth Keeping the Republic, and I would say a resounding yes. Absolutely. Well, you know, like, like I said, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, you're talking about defunding the police uh, up in New York City, they have massive resignations and retirements going on. I know in Atlanta, 
Um, they also have a huge walkout. Uh, we also have um, New York City, July 4th, they're going to have a walkout. July 4th is one of the most heavily trafficked in New York City. You usually have Fleet Week going on during that week. You've got massive celebrations, fireworks going all over, massive display along the East River. It was always fun to work 4th of July, but can you imagine every single cop walking out on one day? That's 35,000, or I believe it's even more than 35,000 police officers leaving the streets completely empty. Can you imagine the mayhem? Annie, it is a recipe for disaster. And the crooks, the criminal element, the gangs, they can't wait. They're probably licking their chops right now. They just can't wait for it to happen. And here we have this mayor of New York, de Blasio. I don't know what he is thinking, but this man, almost every decision that he makes is wrong. And, and I'm not quite sure why he continually makes the wrong decision, especially when it comes to what is best for the people of New York City. You know, as you mentioned, the, the walkouts in Atlanta, I'm in Pensacola, Florida, and thank goodness we haven't had anything like that um, for reason I'm thankful is two reasons. One we have a good, solid community here of, of good people. They had the protest after the George Floyd thing, but it was all peaceful. Um, and we want to keep it that way. The other thing I'm glad about with our situation here in Pensacola is my son is an Escambia County Sheriff Deputy. And I'm so glad that our sheriff and the people here support our police force and we're behind them. We are not as you see in some of those other areas, who are, for whatever reasons, and I think the one in Atlanta was politically motivated, where the district attorney wants to charge that officer with a felony murder. That is outrageous. But we need to just come back to our senses. We need um, people, good people, to stand forward and not let this mob rule take over. No, that's a huge amen to that. You know, here in South Carolina, where I live, uh, we've got a very strong governor in my, my county, a very strong deputy sheriff, uh, and this this would not go. We I've seen protests. It's limited to one small area, uh, and it's done peacefully. At one point, they did attempt to walk across the street to protest directly in front of the police station. That ended rather quickly, and they said, no, you're permitted to be in this area. You cannot obstruct the sidewalk. You cannot obstruct the traffic, and you cannot obstruct us from doing our job. They did the right thing, and peaceful demonstration I can respect. But when you turn to violence, to mayhem and looting, it's it's unacceptable. That's right. That's right, because it. Our Constitution says that the right, that the people have the right to peaceably assemble and to address their government for a redress of grievances. The key word being peaceable. When those uh, protests were hijacked by leftists and terrorist groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, they went beyond just having a peaceable uh, assembly and protest, it turned violent and into a riot, and it should have been stopped 
much sooner than it was. And, and I agree with President Trump when he called the governors and says, you are being too weak in this situation. You should um, use force necessary to make sure that citizens and property are protected. That is what our government is supposed to do. Absolutely. And as for the police officers in Atlanta, uh, it is all politically motivated. I mean, how do you fire an individual and arrest them without a full investigation? And the DA, the facts are not matching what the DA has put forward. Very simply. If you even look at the tape, they do not match the facts the DA has put forward. And if you tell me a taser cannot be used as a lethal weapon, it, 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 that I'm going to turn around and tell you an absolutely bloody idiot. It can be. And that that taser was aimed at his face. And if he was incapacitated, how easily would it have been to remove his firearm from him? So then the perpetrator would have had two lethal weapons, the taser as well as the handgun. Yeah, no, no, no. Obviously, the people that are doing this are highly politically motivated, hate cops, and, and just don't want good to prevail. That's right. Annie, the, the Atlanta police chief, as I understand it, uh, came online and spoke in defense of that police officer. And he said that a taser in the hand of a police officer is not considered a lethal weapon, but a taser in the hands of a criminal is a lethal weapon. And as you say, if they had hit that police officer, he turned and tried to fire the taser at him, that officer would have been incapacitated and no telling what would have happened then. So uh, the police chief um, stood up for that officer and said he did exactly how we trained them to behave. He followed all the procedures. And so for this district attorney, who, by the way, is up for reelection, is trying to make political points, in particular with the black community, just so he can get reelected again, but to put a man's life in shambles like that, just for your political ambitions, um, that's uh, reprehensible, and there's no excuse for that. Yeah, and matter of fact, in the chat room, uh, Bigfoot had mentioned that he's heard about people dying after being tased. Yes, if you've got a cardiac condition, yes. If you've got any other sort of condition that once you tase, yes, you can die from being tased. But there are also other individuals that you can tase them five, six, seven times, and it does no effect. Depending upon how high or drunk they are, it will have absolutely no effect. So, you know, you don't know a situation. It started off peacefully for two officers trying to help this gentleman, realizing he's intoxicated behind the wheel, which means he's a danger if he continues to drive. So trying to remove that danger from the public and then finding that first off he's peaceful and the next thing he's resisting, and they're on the ground grappling with him. No, the, the taser would have no effect on this guy, unfortunately. But you don't know until you try it. But for an right. officer with the adrenaline running, your heart is pumping, you get tased, you can very well have a heart attack if you get hit with that taser. Annie, what we're seeing is that too many in society, and again, it's being fueled by the left, are trying to use a broad brush to paint all of our police force as being systemic racist, that they use too much excessive force 
against um, blacks uh, out of proportion to what they do to whites. And that's actually not true, Annie. There was a book that was written not too long ago by Heather McDonald, where she used uh, documented facts to show that um, white police shoot white people more often than white police shoot black police per capita, and that the largest cause of death, violent death, in the black community is due to black-on-black crime. And so instead of using this broad brush to try and say that all police officers are racist because of the actions of a few, and I'm not trying to defend all police officers' actions, Annie. We know that there are some bad actors, and the reason for that is our community has bad actors, and our police force is made up of our community. So there are people, people will do bad things, and sometimes those people are on the police force. The um, good news, I'm not call it good news, but another side of that is when a bad actor is identified in a police force, it is usually dealt with in a good manner. We hear the situation sometimes where the police union will protect a bad actor and they're able to stay on board for whatever reason. But I think that's rare that that happens. For the most part, a bad actor um, is taken care of. So we need to get away with trying to say that all police are racist, you know, that the police force uh, it has, includes systemic racism, when those are accusations that do not have the facts to back them up. No, they, they don't. And, you know, having been with NYPD, you know, we have in place certain protections to prevent bad actors from you know, continuing their actions. You know, in, when I, in the 10 years I've worked in the command of over 285 officers, I've only known three. And that's 1%, not even, uh, in those 10 years that have ever been bad actors. And, but they've been found out and they had been removed from patrol. Um, if you have someone that ends up with a lot of complaints against them, that is a huge red flag. So obviously Minneapolis did not have the proper safeguards in place if they allowed this one officer with 18 complaints. I mean, you, you get two or three, a flag goes up on you. Any more than that, you know, you're going to be pulled aside. You're going to go through counseling, retraining, or even a criminal investigation. But obviously this one department didn't have that in place. Now what happened in Atlanta? I, I think it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, type of attitude. Uh, if those listening in, normally we do the dedication to a fallen hero at this point, but I'm going to do it at the 5 o'clock hour uh, because I screwed up the interview with Gordon Chang. and I'm going to have to redo it. Uh, the man sat on the phone with me for half an hour, and I did the interview and then recorded only my side of it, not his. So we're going to move the dedication to the 5 o'clock hour because, Mike, you're, you have to leave about that time because you've got uh, a previous appointment. So if you're listening in, we're not, we're not weird. We're just going a little bit differently today. Um, but here, Mike, you'll enjoy this. Uh, Curtis sent me this email this morning, uh, and I guess he wanted me to read it on air, on air. And he's such a wonderful guy. He wrote, 
the Democrats are fleeing from their his, hysterical, not hysterical, historical leaders, uh, distancing themselves from their Confederate generals and demolishing any statue paying homage to the Southern but racist heritage. Soon, these same heroes will be stricken completely from the history books. Why? I believe Democrats want to erase anything connecting them to their shameful racist past so that they can one day say, no, that wasn't our party and certainly not our history. Okay, so you disagree? Well, where is your proof? And where is it written? And that our party did those things? That's what I think this is all about, C.S. Bennett. P.S. In a nutshell, it's a veiled attempt at rewriting of history. How correct Curtis is. Absolutely, Annie. You know, it's, it's interesting. I posted a Facebook video of me standing before the Confederate Memorial here in Pensacola, Florida, making the demand that you are not going to tear this memorial down. And it went viral, uh, Annie. Uh, I think in two days it has something like 46,000 reached and 23,000 shares. Um, the reason I did that, Annie, was, was twofold. First of all, we read in the book of Joshua, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It says, The Lord God spoke to Joshua and told him to select 12 men. This is right after they crossed the Jordan River. To select 12 men to go to the Jordan River and take out stones that they would carry on their shoulders, bring it over into the new land, and build a monument. And he said, the purpose of that is when your children one day come by and say, what's the purpose of that monument? You can tell them what the Lord has done for you. In other words, it was there to help people remember what happened in the past. So we have a 30-foot-tall Confederate memorial in Pensacola that's been there since 1891. And now all of a sudden, the Leftists and the anarchists want to tear it down. They're, they're triggered by it for some reason. And I said, no, you're not going to tear it down. The two reasons for it is, number one, so as a monument, when our children walk by and say, what is this all about? We can explain to them what has happened so you don't repeat the atrocities that happened with the Civil War. The second reason I said you're not going to take it down is because of the purpose of why it was erected. It was not erected to make some racist white supremacist statement or to say that the South is going to rise again. When I studied the history of that memorial, which was um, paid for by private donations, it's on public land right now, it was because um, oftentimes during the Civil War, and, and here in Florida, young men will go off to battle. Sons, brothers, husbands, fathers will go off to battle and were never heard from again. Nobody knew what happened to them. And so the citizens here decided that they were going to erect a monument as a way of closing the wounds of that war, to bring closure to it. And so they erected the, the monument in memory of those who left and we never heard from them again. It's almost like our Vietnam Wall. It was erected with names on there to 
to commemorate those who died in that war and to bring closure to the families. So for those two reasons, I stood before that monument and said, you are not going to tear it down. Uh, the, the monument was here for the right reason, and we can learn from it. So um, we can learn from how some memorials may be there, and the Democrats are trying to hide their past. But no, you're not going to tear it down. We're going to keep it there as a learning situation for our children and our grandchildren. You know, these distinct attacks on the monuments, the statues, you know, they've gone after World War II uh, and World War I monuments um, that has nothing to do with the Civil War. They've gone after uh, a monument to a black author. They have gone after monuments just for the sake of going after the monument without even knowing what the story is behind the monuments. You know, it's not just civil, you know, Southern Civil War monuments. They've hit just about anything and everything they possibly can. That's right, Annie. We have here in Pensacola what we call uh, Veterans Park. And in Veterans Park, we have a Purple Heart Memorial. As you know, the Purple Heart are for those who were wounded in combat. We have a, um, uh, a Revolutionary War uh, Heroes Monument. Um, not too far from us in Freeport, Florida, we have a monument of uh, three soldiers who fought in Vietnam um, and two are helping a wounded one. And all three of those monuments, Annie, have been destroyed, not destroyed, but desecrated. They have had some damage done to them. So you see, it's not about just protesting um, what they say are Confederate monuments. These are anarchists. These are leftists who want any excuse, or they don't need an excuse at all, to destroy and damage property. And when we find those people, when we catch those people, they should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. We don't need to have you going around damaging our culture and our heritage and essentially the soul of this nation. If you don't like it, leave the country, but we are not going to sit by and allow you to cause that damage. Yeah, and as uh, Bigfoot points out in the chat room, again correctly, that they've gone after Winston Churchill's statue. This is a man that told the world the truth about fascism, about the Nazis. He told the truth and led the battle to bring freedom back to the world, but they go after him, but not Senator Robert Byrd, who happened to have been the grand poobah of the Klan. You know, he wasn't just a Klan member. He was the leader of the Klan. I forget what they call the, the, the idiots, um, if I really – That's right. One. But it, it, not Robert Byrd. Well, wait a minute. It, tell me why one year ago Joe Biden was still – not apologizing for being a segregationist on, of all days, June 19th. Joe Biden is, let me be kind about this, um, Annie. Joe Biden's an idiot. And I don't know why <laughs> the Democrat Party don't, is don't putting... Back. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why the Democrat Party is putting this man forward 
as their presidential nominee. I mean, seriously. Um, and, and I would say that what they're doing can almost be classified as elder abuse. It, 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 even before he started clearly his signs of dementia, even before that, you, you can uh, see clips of him of where he is just saying things that, that prove that he, he, he's not a very bright person. I mean, it's, it's, that's just being bluntly honest. And, and they put this man forward um, and not sure why, I guess because he's generated the most financial support and they think that he can beat Donald Trump and that's not going to happen. And, and Donald Trump's going to win this next election in a landslide. Um, I said that the last election, and everyone told me I was crazy. So he's going to win in the landslide. And I believe we're going to see that again in November. You know, it's funny um, watching the news, and uh, I don't know if you're aware that you know, my mom is now living with us. You know, she's recovering from a stroke. And when she lived in the Virgin Islands, she really didn't have TV. Uh, she didn't. She would play a video. She didn't pay attention to the news but now she's watching the news and she's just shaking her head uh she'll turn 88 next uh, next month on july 4th and she's looking at them touting on the news the poll numbers showing joe biden leading your president trump by double digits and this is on fox news <laughs> i'm looking at it and she's shaking her head and she's trying to understand what she's seeing and i said mom don't worry about it this is exactly the same thing that happened. They had Hillary Clinton leading him by double digits. And lo and behold, come election day, when the numbers were all in, we had the left crying for mommy and their crying towels and safe space and having breakdowns. Don't worry, mom. <laughs> it's just going to be a repeat of, of, of 2016. Don't worry. We're, we're okay. That's right. That's right. I, I think that's exactly what we're going to see is not only a repeat of that, but it might even be a bigger margin in 2020 than Trump saw in 2016, um, because he has demonstrated that the policies he puts in place, his America first agenda, it works, but we're seeing the results of it. But we're seeing before this COVID-19 insanity gripped everyone, we were seeing uh, record unemployment uh, across the, all sectors, including um, blacks, Hispanics, Asian, and, uh, uh, those who hadn't gone to high school, record unemployment. Uh, I'm sorry, employment, record employment, people who are actually going to work. And, and then we saw uh, the, the stock market um, just hitting record numbers almost daily. And by the way, we're, we're almost back up to where it was before it hit the brief crash because of COVID-19. So we see his, his foreign policy that he does, bringing respect back to our nation and making sure that China and uh, other nations, but in particular China, will uh, stop taking advantage of us and, and, and allowing the American taxpayers uh, to be their ATM machine. Uh, everyone has seen what President Trump is, is doing. Um, we see a stop to North Korea's nonsense. Um, we see uh, the Middle East and ISIS gone. These are things that President Trump has done. And so be, when you look at all that, 
uh, I feel assured that it is going to be a landslide for President Trump in November. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's going to be even better than 2016. And, you know, I I really have to laugh because the left and the mass media, or lamestream media as I call it, are completely out of touch with what mainstream America is about. You've got a lot of people that are not talking about their political opinions, you know, for fear that, you know, they're going to be put down. Uh, but when they get to that voting booth, that's where their voice is going to be heard. And I, I think it's going to be a larger landslide than it was uh, back in 2016. Annie, i got to tell you this story. Um, I have a younger brother who absolutely detests President Trump. Um, I, I had to tell him one day, I said, you got to get Trump out of your head. I said, that man doesn't even know you and doesn't think – two seconds about you, but you're constantly talking about him and 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 how he is is uh, wrong and bad and everything else. So just get him out of your mind. So at that time we were having this conversation. That's when the Democrats had how many people were on the, the ticket for their primary it was like 12 or 16 or something like that. And I asked my younger brother, I said, okay, okay, okay. I know you don't like Trump. So tell me, who on a Democrat side would you vote for? His response, I had to laugh. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm voting for Trump. My 401k looks great. I said, aha. <laughs> Follow the so Benjamins. Follow the Benjamins. That's right. Well, so I, I, think, I think that, I, that's what we're going to see. That's what I mean, that this record employment. Uh, unemployment is way down across all sectors. Uh, people are, are enjoying the prosperity of this nation. And I think that is, and, and Annie, I'm going to say this. I believe that is why they tried so hard to shut down, cripple this economy with that COVID-19 insanity. And people are finally getting tired of it. I know here in Florida, at least here in the panhandle, we're back to business as usual. Um, you don't see people walking around with masks on. I mean, there are a few, you know, particularly the elderly, and perhaps they should because they're told they are most vulnerable to this virus. But for the most part, um, everyone's back to business as usual. The restaurants are still being cautious. You see all the waiters and waitresses with masks on and wearing gloves and all that. You know, and that's fine. You know, that, that, that's, that's more just their own business decision to do that. And we should practice clean hygiene anyway. Um, but Absolutely. we're seeing a rebound but, in our economy already. And, and so right, what well, they tried to I, do was to hurt the president, but it didn't work. It didn't work. But uh, we just dropped our caller. Ah, uh, darn it. We had our guest on the, on the line. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Because <laughs> I just unmuted him, and he, oh, he's, he's back in. Uh, he just back in. Let's bring aboard, if my computer will allow and behave properly, uh, Pastor Daryl Scott. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor Scott. How are you today? Great. How about yourself? Oh, it is fine. I have as my guest co-host, because my regular co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, is out at a book signing. I have with us our as guest co-host, State Florida Representative Mike Hill. So Mike Hill, meet Pastor Scott. Pastor Scott, Mike Hill. 
Pastor Scott, it's nice my pleasure. You. Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you as well. Looking forward to shaking your hand in person one day. Well, perhaps well, at the uh, perhaps at the Republican RNC in Jacksonville. Oh yeah, that'd be great. I'll be there with bells on. <laughs> Me, I will be there. All right. So I see. I just started a new friendship. All right, um, Pastor Scott, you are with the uh, President Trump's executive transition team. You're also the co-founder of the New Spirit Revival Center in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Uh, I, I see you all the time up on Fox News, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, there is so much good that is going on in the nation, but unfortunately, we see the Antifa riots. Uh, we see the the hair pulling over the COVID virus. And it just kind of like drowns everything out. So please give us some good news here. Well, the recovery uh, of the economy has begun. Um, The president has a number of positive initiatives that he's going to be presenting to the American public uh, week after week after week. Um, And on tomorrow, we have the very first uh, Trump rally uh, of the summer. Uh, over 1 million people have registered to be a part of that in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think they're going to accommodate about 60,000 inside, 20,000 in one arena, 40,000 in another uh, area reserved for the rally. And it's going to be tremendous. The president will be back in an element that he thrives in, and he's going to be feeding off of the energy of the people. And I'm looking forward to it being a, just a tremendous time in America on that day. And that shows you how much uh, support and how popular our president is that one million people registered for an event. I've never seen anything like that in my life, that this one uh, guy can pull in uh, a crowd of a million people and he doesn't have a guitar. He doesn't have dancers behind him. <laughs> he, doesn't have, he doesn't have an actor. It's just one man that doesn't need star power. He doesn't have to have a slew of celebrities, just he and he alone have that many people wanting to attend one of his rallies in person. I think it's fantastic, and I'm looking forward to it happening. Well, I was, I was as I was doing my homework last night and I was going through the Internet, you know, I came across uh, some Facebook postings and Twitter postings. People actually started to camp out on Monday, on Monday, six days oh, yeah. before. Six days before, and then the people are out there. They've got very, very imaginative ways of showing their support for Trump. There was a father with his family, all girls, and they had a vote Trump song. And the way they harmonized and danced together was so inspiring. You know, I, I think there is a new joy, a gracious and glorious joy that is starting to spread through America. We've coming through this pandemic. And we're saying, hey, listen, we're still surviving. We're still here. And Trump is just sitting back going, you guys did it. He's not taking the glory and, and, and praise for himself. He's saying, you guys did it. You are America. We will survive. Yes, he is. I mean, it's the hottest ticket in, the, in, in America right now, uh, access to the Trump rally. And once again, I'm looking forward to it. I think you know, the president enjoys these rallies. He feeds off of the crowd. Um, it's almost a, a relief for him to be able to do so. And so I'm glad for him personally that he will be able to stand in front of people that are overwhelmingly supportive of him rather than 
you know, those that are uh, overwhelmingly antagonistic towards him. And, you know, he has to put up with that on a regular basis, fake news, reporters, everybody trying to catch him, everybody trying to ask him gotcha questions, and everybody trying to be uh, antagonistic and adversarial towards him and sending him negative vibes. He gets to go there, and he's looking forward to it very much. He's looking forward to it. He gets to go there and just be himself on stage and once again, feed off of the energy and the positive vibes of the masses. And it's going to be a great day, not only for him personally, not only for the campaign, but it's going to be a great day for America as well. Well, I, I was at the uh, rally that was here in South Carolina, and I got to thank I thanked Gabriella for getting me in there because uh, she got me through with the press passes. Uh, but going with the crowd, walking around, and and feeling the energy. I mean, it's one thing to do an online rally, but to be there in person and feel the power that is is there in that in that arena is absolutely amazing. And then to hear the messages of all the people that come forward to speak. You know, I, I, if people are looking at the Facebook behind me is a, a Cops for Trump poster that I walked up to a guy and I saw he had them. And I'm a retired cop. And I said, man, can I get one? I'm sitting in the press uh, area and Trump is rallying against the press. I'm going, not me, not me. I'm waving my sign. But it, it is so good to see America open up again. As a matter of fact, uh, just this past month, the retail sales have increased 17.7% because Trump opening up the nation again. Right. And you know one thing I would like to say, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that you will agree with me based upon your own experience, the Trump rallies, to be honest, are really just a huge love fest. When you mingle with the crowd, when you interact with the people, you know, the media would have, the left-wing media, excuse me, would try to portray that these are, are hate-filled, communist, Nazi, uh, negative rallies, when in reality the exact opposite is true. I mean, when I'm there, I get so much warmth and so much love. Uh, race is not a factor. Um Ethnicity is not a factor. We're just all united on the common goal that we love, a common, common basis that we love America, and, and we, we love our President Donald Trump. And so I enjoy just the, uh, the love fest that it is. And, you know, a lot of people that have went to those rallies have come away pleasantly surprised and said these are not the atmosphere, the mood, the spirit there is not what the left-wing media portrayed it to be. And so I like that. And once again, as you said, you got cops. There's going to be all kind of four Trumps there: cops for Trumps, ladies for Trumps, men for Trumps, <laughs> this for Trump, that for Trump, the other for Trump. I enjoy it, and everybody's happy, and everybody's getting along, and and, and it's it's going to be a great time. Absolutely. Pastor Matter Scott, fact, good. I'm sorry, Annie. Pastor Scott, this is Representative Mike Hill. I've had the honor of when President Trump came to the Florida Panhandle during the 2016 election that I opened for him in prayer on three separate occasions. So I can testify to what you're saying, the accuracy of what you're saying, that at each rally we had uh, 30,000 indoors at the Pensacola uh, Bay Center. And then we had it at our uh, outdoor baseball stadium uh, we were turning people away. There were so many. And in each time, as you say, the crowd is showing their love and respect for the United States of America and their appreciation 
for what President Trump has done for this nation. So, and, and this is something I, I really like too, Pastor Scott, and you'll appreciate this, that when the rally is over and it's time to leave, again, it's always a good mood. It's always everyone is cheerful, appreciative, grateful, and there is no trash left behind. It is almost as pristine as before it started. You're absolutely right. And you know what? People seem as if they go out of their way to be polite one to another. I mean, even in the parking lot, people on the way out, people are being nice, letting folks cut in front of them. Everybody's patient. Everybody's kind. It's amazing. And you know what? I found an old video that I didn't even know was out there. Uh, I I had the privilege of opening up the very first Trump rally in Georgia, October 10th, 2015. We had maybe a few thousand people there, maybe. And at the time, he was candidate Trump number 17 in a field of 17 Republican primary challenges. And I looked at them and said, wow, we've sure gone a long way from this one. I remember that. I remember, you know, we had a lot of people around the front. But I remember leaving the stage and going back to the snack bar and didn't even have to wait in line. And there were people there for Trump. And nowadays, please, I say he's come a long <laughs> way from today. But you know what? Even you know, then, though, for him to be number 17 in the field of 17, there was enthusiasm for him there in Georgia. And, uh, you know, we were pleased that the crowd was that size. Like, wow, this many people showed up for, for a Donald Trump rally. It's his very first rally. and Because in comparison, I mean, the the – I don't think the Jeb Bush rallies had much of a crowd or the uh, – who else was there? The Carly Fiorona rally or the uh, the, <laughs> the Marco Rubio <laughs> rally. They weren't packing them in. So even then, that was a big crowd. But now, this guy has a million people trying to come see him. Uh, it is amazing. And, Mike, you made a good point that when the people leave – the place is almost neater than when it, it when it started. I, I saw people actually go out of their way, walk all across the whole field just to get to a garbage can they could put their stuff in. I also saw people walking around with plastic bags, picking up anything that may have fallen to the ground. You know, the same thing happened with the Tea Party, but this is the Tea Party on steroids under Donald Trump. Am I with you guys? Yes, I'm here. Hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah Annie, you're, you're you're absolutely right. You know, I've been to rallies now, and as you say, Pastor Scott, a million people are trying to get in. I've been to rallies, and I'm sure you've seen them, where this was again at a uh, a stadium that was full, and then across the street from it, actually a block or two away, they set up a huge TV screen, and Thousands of people were standing in front of it and, and were cheering just as loud as if they were in the stadium. It, it's, it's utterly amazing. Um, Andy, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to ask Pastor Scott to comment on uh, something that he did not too long ago when he testified before the House Judiciary Committee uh, against the desire for some places to defund their police department. Um, Pastor Scott, can you tell us a little bit about that that incident and what you said? Well, um, I'm against defunding the police. I think it would be a travesty to the American public for the police to be defunded. Um, Actually, in certain areas of the country, 
you need to increase funding for police and increase police presence and police power. So I had no problem speaking my mind regarding that. I tried to be fair and balanced and understand the need for police reform for the fact that, you know, the use of excessive force has to be eliminated. The use of police retaliation has to be eliminated. However, we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and, and completely dismantle or uh, eliminate police at all. The police do a, a, a great service to our, our country. They're our first line of defense. They're the first deterrent. For crime, and so you know it's ridiculous. It's just a political talking point, and you know a lot of those politicians up there on the Democratic side were looking at me sideways when I said that it was in a, simply a political ploy to garner votes because I don't know why they think black people don't want police. <laughs> black people want police just as much or more as anyone else. The only ones that only ones that don't want police are, are those of the criminal element, and so you know that is something, and that's cross race. Uh, that's interracial. And so, you know, it was a ridiculous premise to eliminate police. It's simply politics. Here it is, election season, and the left is doing anything they can that they think will uh, garner votes for them. And so I was honored and privileged that they considered me to even go up there and make that statement. And and, um, I tried to be fair and balanced in it, but I had to make it a point that we're not in agreement with defunding the police. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. It's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Pastor Scott, amen to that. Um, Gabriella told me that you had to leave at exactly 10 up, so I don't want to hold you up unless you feel like staying, Uh, but I I understand you had to have another. I have some appointments. In fact, my phone was steady ringing for the people for the next event that I have to be at, but I didn't answer. (laughs) So they're calling me. (laughs) But listen, can you do me a favor? Can, you, can I come on again? I'm enjoying this conversation, and I'm enjoying the, our fellowship one with another. There's so much more I would like to talk about. If you, if you, if you oh, would, absolutely. I would appreciate you uh, re-inviting me. Absolutely. You've got an open invite. Pastor Darrell Scott, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. God bless you. Bye-bye. God bless. Take care. Pastor Darrell Scott, check him out. Uh, Mike, always. Uh, the, I, I, I get some of the best guests in the world here, don't I? You do, Annie. It's amazing. I'd like to look at your Rolodex. Well, that's kind of dating myself to see how on <laughs> earth you get all these people and, and get them on your show. You you do an amazing job. <laughs> well, I always say there's no harm in asking. The worst that will happen, they'll say no, so you get someone else to say yes. <laughs> that's right. So, that's right. I, I, just want to, I just want to point out, Mike, that if anyone is questioning themselves about, you know, whether or not Trump is doing a good thing with this uh, rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, this was an article that I, I popped off of uh, Bikers for Trump. Um, an Oklahoma judge has denied a request that would have forced President Trump to cancel the reelection campaign plan for Tulsa tomorrow. Two residents, two people, tried to sue. They claimed they, they were immunocompromised joined with two Tulsa organizations, the Greenwood Culture Center and the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation. The heck is that? Uh, To file suit against ASM Global, the management company for the uh, Box Center, where the rally is being held. Um, They claim that if ASM Global moves forward with the event without adequate review, planning, training, protective equipment, and safeguards, 
cases of COVID-19 and the unavoidable attendant deaths will rise, the complaint said. Now, you've been at a Trump rally. I've been at a Trump rally. Pastor Scott has been at Trump rallies. You know tons of planning goes in there. The Secret Service goes in first to review the area to see whether or not it's safe enough to have it. And then you have myriads of organizations that go through there, you know, organizing and coordinating. On top of which, the Trump campaign had stated that all attendees will be given masks and have their temperature taken. So they're going to screen people, give them protection. So what's the problem here? It's just the left's way of trying to silence the Trump rally. That's right. That's right. It's just another ploy that they tried to do. What's interesting, Annie, is whenever you see the left trying to do something, it always seems to be wrong. It, it always seems to be the wrong direction, and they try to disguise it by saying that they are, are, are trying to protect people, but it, it's so obvious that what they are doing is just wrong. And the left seems to be on that side more often than not. Um, it sounds like that every pre- precaution is being taken but I, I have a prediction here, Annie, that they're going to give those masks to everyone, and I will predict that more than half will not be wearing them. <laughs> yeah, but the next day you'll see them up on eBay. <laughs> That's right. And, and they won't be wearing them because they're not succumbing to this COVID-19 insanity. You know, and, and we read, Annie, uh, conflicting information. Some say that the masks work. Others are saying the masks don't work. And others even say that the masks are harmful. So, and, and coming from the same organization, the World Health Organization, first they say they work, then they say they don't work. So, uh, with all that conflicting information, I think people, because those who attend Trump rallies are so uh, polite and law-abiding, they'll probably all take the mask. And, and I think some will put them on, um, but once they get in there and the energy and enthusiasm is going, um, I think you're going to see the majority of them coming off. Uh, absolutely. You know, I had to take my mom for a doctor visit. Um, matter of fact, I had to see the same doctor at the same time. Um, but Going in, I can understand going into a doctor's office or a medical facility. You're going to be around sick people, so I can understand them requiring that. Uh, you know, they take the temperature to make sure you don't have a fever or whatever. But uh, when I go outside, you're outdoors. I see people sitting in the car with the windows rolled up. There's no one else in the car with the, with the mask on. Right. I, it, this is, this, I, I, I just shake my head and go, just how idiotic are we as as human beings just how stupid are we annie it it doesn't even make sense you know when you see that i i wanted to ask someone one time i was in the car my wife was with me and a a car pulled up next to us and and it was a lady by herself with the window up and with her mask on and i said to my wife i want to ask her why is she wearing that mask my wife said don't you dare and so I rolled the window down on her side, on the passenger side, pretending like I was going to ask. And my wife leaned her seat back so she couldn't be seen in the car with me. 
And so I just kind of laughed, rolled the window back up. I said, I'm just teasing. I wouldn't do that. But I'm curious, why on earth do you have that mask on in a car by yourself? It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't. It, it does not make sense uh, at all. And it's just, it's just, I find it absolutely amazing. And matter of fact, we've got our next guest in on the line. Let's bring on returning to the show. Ms. Sandra Lee. She's the author of Dear Donald, Letters from a Loving Deplorable. Good afternoon, Sandra. How are you today? Oh, good afternoon, Annie. It's so nice to hear your voice again. I'm having a rough time today. My sister uh, lost her son to cancer this morning. So we're all uh, at her home. I came out to the car so I could speak to you. And, you know, it made me think how short life is, and it made me sad how many terrible things are going on around the world. What a difficult time this is for our country. It is, and we've got a president that's in office. I think God placed him at that here at this time to help steer us through. But Sandra, I want to let you know, I don't have my normal co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, with me. Instead, sitting in for him is Florida State Representative Mike Hill. Um, so I, if you need to leave early, or if you don't want to, want to postpone oh, or no, redo the interview. I'm fine. I was looking forward to talking to you all day. You're, you're, you're a bright, shiny star in a very dark sky. So <laughs> It's my pleasure to spend some time with you today. Thank you, though, for considering oh. me. I appreciate that. And thank you to your guest. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing whatever he has to say as well. So much going on in the world today, isn't there? The Democrats want to defund the police and, and disarm us, and, and uh, that's not a good thing. That it is not. You know, it's amazing. The very people that want to disband the police and dis, uh, de, uh, defund them are willing to give to Antifa AR-15s like you see in that little Chaz or Chop Kingdom in Seattle, but take away from legal residents lawful guns. So you know, what is it? You know, what your anarchy is those. It's anarchy. I was watching those six blocks of horror. They're now down to three blocks. And, you know, I'm sure there are some good people there. I'm, I'm sure when I was young, you know, I was a, a Woodstock uh, kind of kid. And, you know, when you're young, you see the world from a different perspective. But at the same time, it wasn't a Woodstock feeling in that six-block space. It was, um, it was hellish. It was there were a lot of elements about it that were evil. They were trying to play it down and say, oh, there's art and there's music and come on. There was Antifa. There were evil doers. There were amoral people. There were people on the street lying down drunk and drugged. It was a pretty horrifying situation. There was violence. There was viciousness. I thought it was a nightmare. I was very frightened by it and very disheartened to see similar things happening around the country. Mike, don't be quiet. Jump in. Uh, uh, Ms. Sandra Lee, first I want to say that um, it's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And Thank I know you, you so much. Yes. I know you've written a book, 
um, a, a book that's titled uh, Dear Donald, Letters from a Loving Deplorable. Yes, and, and I'm very loving. Not just to Donald <laughs> and not just to Republicans, but I try to be loving to everyone, even when I'm angry and disenchanted and sad and disappointed. You know, there's enough anger out there, and I'm trying so hard, being a, a Christian, you know, respecting all religions, to to spread some love, to spread spread some caring. That's why it's called Dear Donald's Letters from a Loving Deplorable. And I just finished the second book, which I'm going to publish in a couple of weeks, and that's Dear Donald's Four More Years. And I'm on the cover with balloons and streamers and confetti. You think I'm a little bit positive? I believe this man's going to win again, and I'm praying that he wins again because we need his leadership. We need his well, leadership. You make, what do you think? I, I think that as soon as you finish that book, you better send me a copy. <laughs> I'm going to send you a copy. Autographs, blue hearts all over the autograph page. Oh, I am. Thanks. I'm going to do that. But well, these democratic cities. You know, the Bible says you shall know them by their fruits. All these democratic cities are such a huge disappointment to me. They're in such disarray. The governments are corrupt. They're out of money. Their their people are just all dissatisfied. I have children living in the New York area in Port Washington and um, a, a very short distance from Manhattan. And they're so disenchanted with the government in New York that they want to come to Ohio, where I am living now. I lived in New York for a very, very long time. Well, it's funny because I used to live in Northport, and I'm always out at Port Washington. Such a beautiful area oh, right there on the Northport is gorgeous, the North Shore. and Port Washington yes. is gorgeous. But it's changing. Yes. It's changing. Yes. Do you know that in Suffolk County now? They're worried about, um, um, oh, what's that gang, you know, where they're, they're so vicious? MS-13? Yeah, MS-13. I couldn't even think of the yeah. name of those terrible people, Annie. MS-13, they're, they're infiltrating Long Island, Port Washington, and Northport, these gorgeous sea towns. How sad is that? It's so sad. It is. It is. And it used to be Nassau County and Suffolk County on Long Island were highly Republican areas. And uh, over the years, it's turned. So what used to be a good, strong hold for conservatives is no longer there. Mike, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, that's okay, Annie. I I was going to just say that um, you talk about the MS-13 infiltrating these neighborhoods or these areas that – at one time were just beautiful and magnificent. And Sandra, with them infiltrating there, and now with de Blasio and others saying we're going to defund the police, what kind of effect is that going to have on those neighborhoods? Oh, God help us. You can't defund the police. You need to add to the funding of the police. These people aren't getting rich. That's not a highly paid position. They're risking their life day after day. 90% of them are wonderful. 5% of them may be just okay. A very small, tiny, tiny percentage of them are like that awful man who, who this whole big uproar started over, who, was, who killed that uh, person. He had his knee on his uh, neck. That was, oh, it broke my heart. 
But that's not representative of the police department. So there's an overreaction to that, and there's all of this undermining political activity that takes advantage of every negative thing that ever happens in the police department and then tries to turn it against the law and order, rule of law and order against Republicans. This is political sabotage. It has nothing to do with true true justice. And then you see on the streets of New York a 92-year-old retired school teacher and and this young black man who's who's 31 years old and has had 65 prior arrests, knocks her down, sees her hit her head on a hydrant or a curb or whatever, turns back, looks at her, and keeps walking. You know, this is what they, they don't want police characters like this. I don't care if they're black or white or yellow or green or young or old or Democrat or Republican. If you're treating somebody like that, you need a policeman to take charge. Oh, look at me being angry, and I promised I wouldn't be angry. (laughs) But this is just making me so crazy. Sometimes you've got to vent to let that anger out so the love can come back in. You know that. And uh, yeah, you probably know this area, Mike. This this is a story that broke yesterday on the Gateway uh, Pundit, Jim Holt. Um, there is a travel stop in Georgia, in the Hinesville area, the Love's Travel Stop. And my husband and I have stopped at it often. If you go up the I-95 corridor, you pass it all the time. It's just just before the South Carolina border. A female police officer on her way home after a long shift, stopped by the McDonald's in the Love's Travel Stop in Georgia. And she had pre-ordered and prepaid for her meal. So she figured she'd go just through the drive-thru, pick her meal up, and head on home. Well, what happened was the employees made her wait in the drive-thru. Then they told her to pull over to the side to wait for her English muffin breakfast. Then they came out only with a cup of coffee and told her the employee to forget her meal. She told the employee, at this point, she said, forget the meal. She was too scared, too frightened that as she was in this travel stop that something bad would happen to her. Here's a cop off duty in fear for her life because of the Black Lives Matter, because of the death of this one individual, George Floyd, at the hands of this one Minneapolis police officer. The nation has turned on its head. I, I, I can truly understand her fear. And, and I this, can this too. is what I really least... can. You know, I'm a member of a multicultural, multiracial church. I'm Lebanese. My father came from Lebanon. He was an immigrant, became an American citizen the right way. And I guess I'm considered Caucasian and um, love America. He loved America. I go to this multiracial church, a lovely church in Bedford, Ohio. And I went to church this Sunday, and, of course, there was all this unrest in the country about these police incidents. And I I thought twice about it. I'm like five minutes from the church, so glad the church is open again. And I turned around and went home, and I texted my pastor. I said, there's so much going on right now. I mean, I had to go to church with a mask on, that which I didn't want to do. I had to social distance, which I didn't want to do. I couldn't say hello to anybody or hug anybody, which I wasn't happy about. And then I'm in a half-black church in a totally black community, and I'm white, and we're in a climate 
where, where they, I don't know what to expect. I mean, this is a church I've gone to for 40 years. These are good people. They love me. I love them. But I'm frightened. There's so much evil going on that's instigated by Antifa and by, by political groups who want power. It has nothing to do with the beautiful people who are in my church. But I don't know what strangers are going to walk in there. You know, have nothing to do. They're not parts of the membership of my church. So this is the unrest that's happening to good people, to Christian people, to good religious Jewish people, to to good people of all faiths and all colors. We're we're just besides ourselves, not knowing what on earth to do, and we're begging, and praying, and pleading that Donald Trump win again because I really trust his instincts and I trust that he is really wanting to do the right thing for the country and I think he's really smart he's really smart (laughs) I'm trusting his talent and I'm voting for him and cheering for him and I don't know here we go Um, Sandra let (laughs) me offer this if I may there were one million requests for tickets for his uh, Oklahoma rally coming up. Yeah. I'm sorry I'm going to shut up and yeah. let you talk. I'm getting so excited today <laughs> about Donald Trump. It's crazy. Well, Sandra, <laughs> that's ahead, what Mike. I wanted to speak about. Um, it, it Things look like that they are in bad shape right now. What we've seen over the past couple of weeks with the nonsense with this rioting and looting and so forth. And I can remember 20 years ago hearing a sermon from a pastor named Anthony Campolo, who I used to like, but not so much anymore. But he had a sermon, and the title of it was, It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. So it looks like on that day, on that dark day when our Savior was crucified, that evil had won. But Sunday is coming. And so what we're seeing around the nation in so many cities right now, it looks like evil is prevailing, that it's winning. But Sunday is coming. And God is still on the throne. Thank you for that. Jesus is still Lord. Boy, I'm holding that in my heart. (laughs) Indeed, Jesus is still Lord. And so I want to offer to you, Sandra, to let's start looking forward to Sunday. And if you can, I don't want to put you on the spot. But from your your book uh, that you wrote, uh, Letters from a Loving Deplorable, can you share just a little bit one of those loving letters or something from the book that you can recall about a loving letter? I would really love to do that. You know, I just finished book two, Dear Donald, Four More Years. And the last page I wrote the day that he was giving his speech – um, at the uh, SpaceX Center, at the Kennedy Space Center. And what I wrote, I said, and then when all seemed hopeless and everything seems hopeless, Donald, you stand strong and proud at our Kennedy Space Center where you speak tenderly to the nation about the cruel death of George Floyd at the hand of police brutality. You offer encouragement and optimism regarding our national and global recovery from the Wuhan virus. You stand tall and full of dreams and visions and aspirations 
and reminders that God tells us that all things are possible. You praise private industry and Elon Musk's SpaceX. You celebrate our past successes and trumpet our grandest dreams. I stand before you, you say, as a friend and ally to every American seeking justice and peace. And I stand before you in firm opposition to anyone exploiting this tragedy to loot, rob, attack, or menace. Healing, not hatred. Justice, not chaos, are the missions at hand. And I close with, you remind us to hold on to our dreams, Donald. You command us to reach for the moon. We will reach with a renewed spirit, and with God's help, we will together dance among the stars. Wow. That was beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Now, I'm in my car. I'm going to start my car again. So if you lose me for one second, don't go away. Here I am. Here I am doing this interview in my car. My father was a Lincoln dealer, and I'm sitting in a beautiful red Lincoln outside of my sister's home where all of our Lebanese family is uh, gathered to support her in the loss of her son. He was 58. He struggled six years with cancer. Wow. As is it a long time. Well, my heart and prayers go out to your family for the loss of of, of, of your sister's son. Uh, but well, talking uh, to uh, you today is a welcome respite. It's just such, such a nice thing to hear you and, and your guests. Tell me your name again. Uh, I just didn't get your guest's name. I'd like to write it down. I'm, I'm Mike, Mike Hill. Yeah, Florida Can State Representative Mike Hill. H-I-L-L. Yes, and ma'am. Florida State yep. Rep. Representative, yep. that's right. Two. In St. Petersburg Beach, I have a, a home. And I also have a home in Ohio, the Cleveland, Ohio area. But I lived in New York for many, many years. So, I, you know, I know, I know different parts of the country pretty well. I've been doing interviews all over the country and in Canada, and I'm really learning a lot about these different things. Florida is a great place right now, pretty good. I like the government there. Yeah, Governor Ron DeSantis has been doing a great job. Uh, He has begun opening back up the economy again. We're real close to getting a phase three, which is uh, opening up uh, businesses and restaurants even more. And we have had um, one-tenth the number of COVID deaths that New York has, even though we have oh, isn't similar that number wonderful. population. I mean, you we should have, be very proud of that. Yeah, I think DeSantis did a very good job. All of the, all of the states did a good job. He has done a good job. Except for, except for New York and California, <laughs> we'll leave them out. <laughs> we'll and leave them out. We will. Annie, how are things well, you where know, you live? Well, I'm in South Carolina. We've got a great governor, uh, McMaster's, and uh, he's got businesses open. He's got uh, restaurants open. Uh, I believe we should be at 100% capacity with restaurants. Um, We've had an uptick in some cases, but you have to understand there's more testing available than there was a month ago. So you're going to see a higher number of cases, but that doesn't mean the cases have increased. It's just that now we're testing exactly. for it and, and we people have to keep all those facts 
yeah, they have to keep those facts under control because people get confused. Just because there are more cases doesn't mean we're in worse shape. We're doing this enormous amount of testing. So uh, we're still in good shape. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is true. good news. And now, I, I want to... I want to mention Saturday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the Trump rally. And people started camping out on Monday for this rally on yeah. Saturday. Now, amazingly, also, Oklahoma just a few days ago passed something called uh, the Unborn Person Wrongful Death Act. Now, this will be good news for you. Uh, what this does is that uh, many women facing what could be the most difficult decision of their lives are not receiving the basic informed consent required under law. In fact, one shocking report found that as many as 69% of abortions in the U.S. are performed without full legal consent. But what this legal team did is the first of its kind law in the nation, which passed working with legislators and the governor's office to defend countless unborn lives. So now the victims who are wrongfully coerced into abortions can sue the abortionist for a wrongful death. This is absolutely wow, that's phenomenal. That's And you know, yes. you, now, you know I, did, I did 400 television shows. I produced and hosted them. And they were all get better, you know, optimistic, positive. And I did, oh, I must have done 50 shows on the topic of abortion. Because when I was young... You know, birth control was the thing. You know, oh, my gosh, you could have sex. You didn't have to worry. Free love, uh, Woodstock, all of that craziness. And so as I matured as a Christian and as I grew up and matured, I understood how evil abortion was. You know, when I was young, even priests were confused about when life started, when it stopped. What? Now we know, you know, this is a viable living creature. At the moment of conception, this is murder, abortion. And so young people who are in that situation, not only the mothers, but the fathers are terribly, it, they're filled with grief and guilt, and I interviewed so many of them. This is not something you just click your fingers and you're over it. You're never over it. Some people are bothered by it the rest of their lives. So we have to take this seriously, not only for the life of the child, but the life of the parent who's put themselves through that confusing, upsetting, and horrifying ordeal. They need to know what their legal rights are, and they need to understand the viability of that life, the moment of conception. Many of them don't even know it. They, they don't understand it. So education is so important. Absolutely. Are you going to be able to come very today? <laughs> I swore I was going to be calm and positive, and I've been exactly the opposite the whole time. I don't know. You better make me a cup of tea. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Probably I lost my nephew, and I'm feeling a little bit desperate and angry. His young children are so beautiful. They're just out of college. They're beautiful. And I want them to walk into a beautiful world, and right now I don't see a beautiful world. I'm so glad that you shared, Mike, that wonderful, that wonderful thing that you said. I wish I had written it down about Friday, you know, it's how Friday, dark and but, sad it was. But Sunday's coming. Uh, okay, I just wrote that down. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I'm going to use that one, baby. That's a good one. 
And All right, might I have to hope t-shirt out of it. young people. Yeah. I might. That'd be a grand t-shirt. Mike, you could make a lot of money. Because I think <laughs> everybody's feeling the darkness of um, this hour. And they need hope. That would be a darn good t-shirt, Annie. Maybe the three of us should go into business and do it. <laughs> See, prospect for the future. Prospect for the yeah, future. Yeah, for know, sure. I, I believe... I do believe in the future. Matter of fact, I had a friend of mine, um, I was at physical therapy yesterday, and he shot me a text. Um, he was uh, he, he he was part of the, uh, he wrote the book Echo and Ramadi, and he was part of the Gulf uh, War, the Desert, not Desert Storm, the recent one. Um, his son just graduated from a training over in Quantico, yeah, Quantico. He's in the Marine Corps, and he was so proud, and he said, you know, looking at his, his son, he said there is hope for the future. If we look across America and look at the real youth in America and look at how good they are, we have a small handful that are causing all these problems, but look at the rest, and, and we do have a hopeful nation. They're seeing what's going on with the bad right now, what was going to happen come November our voice is going to be heard in that election booth. I mean, I, I don't care what the polls say. It's going to be a repeat of November 2016. Biden's going down. He's going to go crash landing. And Trump, once again, will those be four more years. Those polls don't mean anything, Annie. I worked in those, um, in fact, the first couple of pages in my first book, I talked about going into a political office down the street from my father's automobile dealership. Because I thought, well, I'll campaign for Trump. I'd never campaign for anybody. And I went in. I thought I'd make some phone calls and, and do what I could to help. I must have made 4,000 phone calls. Do you know how afraid people were to express their positive feelings for Trump? They didn't because they felt it would be them saying they were against blacks because Obama was the previous president. had nothing to do with that. They loved Trump who, of course, had to be so white and so blonde. It's almost a, a, a crazy paradox, but it has nothing to do with black and white. It has to do with I love what the man is fighting for. I love what he's accomplished. And so all the people who wanted to vote for him really believed in him, and, and they were rooting for him, but they didn't want to admit it. So the polls just are. <coughs> They're not honest. Because no, they're, they're not. not. And there's a lot the of people who believe in Trump don't even want you to know that they do. There's a lot of closet conservatives. That's going to be the new new phrase, Mike, closet conservatives out there. And the only yeah. way you know yeah. that they are conservative is how they vote. They won't talk to you about it. They won't say anything about it. But look at the way they lead their lives and then look at the results come Election Day. And I think that's the new term. Or the silent majority, the closet conservative. How's that sound, Mike? Yeah. Sounds great. And, and I, there's a lot of accuracy to that, too. Sandra, let me yeah. ask you this. You, you, you ran a little bit from your, your first book. Can you give us a preview of something that's in your next book, um, Dear Donald, Four More Years? You know, the letters, it's letter after letter after letter. And letters, ever since the church began, letters were a powerful tool in God's hands. God entrusted the gospel messages to 
Paul and John and Luke who, who wrote to the churches in letters. So at first I thought, letters? Why am I writing all these letters to Donald Trump? How, how impactful can they be? But, but what they were, I would open my heart about what was going on in my life. You know, right now I'm going through helping my sister bury her beautiful son who was a lawyer and a judge and raised perfect children in a good Christian home. Why him? Why him and these horrible people in this dreadful city uh, are alive, laying on the ground, drunk and stoned and drugged and carrying weapons and threatening good people? I mean, why? So some of the time I'm talking about what's going on in my life I'm asking God questions, and at the same time, I'm talking to Donald Trump. And, and I'm talking to him like he's my best friend, like he's known me all my life. And then I comment on exactly what he did that day and what he's doing that's helping me feel some hope and positivity about the future. And then in every letter, in every single letter, I end with, and I, you know, I'm not such an overly religious person. I'm kind of surprised that the book took on this personality. But I end with a prayerful or um, spiritual comment, and I always end telling Donald that I'm praying for him, that so many of us are praying for him, and we are. We are sincerely praying for this man. So every letter talks about what he's doing, my reaction to it. I am the middle-class, white, educated, suburban woman who was a little bit nervous about Donald because of the way he spoke. You know, a little rough around the edges, a little bit of a playboy in his 30s and 40s. And, you know, I had to come to terms with all of that. And I remembered that all the apostles were sinners. And then I thought, well... All of us are sinners. Some of us have not made our sins as public as Donald Trump. And so I forgave him for every sin he ever committed because I just like the guy. And letter after letter, I embrace him exactly as he is, macho and bold and brash and honest to a, to a fault. He lets us know exactly what he's thinking. At least I know who he is. He's energetic. He's charismatic. He's imposing. He's funny. Sometimes he's very funny. So some of the pages are about the funny things he does. I love how successful he is. I'm successful in life because I read all of his books, invested in real estate. I'm not as rich as he is by a long shot. But for a woman, let me tell you, I did really well, and I followed his model of investment. I love his strength. I'm divorced, and uh, that's a heartbreak for me. I see the failures he's had in his relationships, but he regrouped, he kept his family together, and I learned from that. I kept my family together. I'm in a wonderful relationship now. You know, mistakes do not mean that you don't repent and improve your life. You do. He's an adored father, adored by his children and grandchildren. He has a huge following. One million people want to go to that that a rally, come on, while Biden's in the basement and can't get four people to come to anything. He's a Twitter <laughs> genius. You know, he's not a young man. And I can't get into the social media the way he does. 
He's a genius at it. Isn't that amazing? Because he's not young. But he's mastered a way to communicate with people in younger generations so that they get it. You know, they get who he is. such brilliant. You get to hear from him every day. He has an enormous war chest. He's a huge fan of financial support to everyone. He's the right man for his time. I think he's chosen by God. All of this is in my book, page after page after page. The the uh, tough, bossy, determined person he is is fine with me. I thought Obama was very gracious and very refined and very well-spoken. I was a public speaking teacher. I had a talk show, so I respect good speech. I love Donald Trump's speech. It's real. It's authentic. You listen to it and you never get tired of it. You want to hear what he's going to say next. He's funny. He's hilarious. He's refreshing. He's believable. What else can I say? That's the whole book well, in a Sa- nutshell. Sandra, um, I, people can find you by going to your website, which is DearDonaldBooks.com. I want to thank you for joining us. And, again, my prayers and heart go out to you and your family at this time. Uh, you will always be thank in my prayers. Thank you so much. And, Mike Hill, it was such a pleasure being with you. And um, I'm going to keep that. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming in my heart. That's going to be very helpful today for me, so thank you, too. And thank you, Manny. I hope I can be on again. It's always a pleasure. Oh, We'll be talking again, Sandra. Take care. Sandra Lee, check her out, DearDonaldBooks.com. We've got our next guest in on the line. I've known him ever since we started the tea party. Good Lord, can I believe it that long ago. Welcome back, Bill Muckler. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ann. Can you hear me? Yep, we got you loud and clear. Okay, How great. How are you today? Hey, it's great to be on. I've, I've been your guest several times, and I've actually uh, been a substitute host a couple of times. So really glad to be on the show, and I've been listening to it. Uh, try to listen every week, and I listened to the last half hour. What a wonderful guest you had on. Yeah, and if anyone's tuning in looking for Gordon Chan, I want to let you know I screwed up the interview. I talked with him for half an hour today, and it only recorded my side of the conversation, not his. So I have to redo that and hopefully post it up at a later date. So we have no Gordon Chan. We're going to be doing our dedication at the 5 o'clock hour. But, Bill, welcome back. Where can people find uh, your radio show? Well, actually, I, I I do an internet TV show, so um, and uh, I and I've been doing it on YouTube now, and uh, you can actually find everything about me at my website, which is uh, www. Well, they're all www. Dot something, right? Two zero two zero americabook. Dot com. In other words, twenty twenty americabook. Dot com. And I've just released a second uh, 2020 book called 2020, A Clear Vision for Our Future. And, gosh, I, I can't believe it. I, I, I made an initial order because I had to um, um, self-publish. And I've sold all, but uh, as my son says, don't count the books you sell, uh, count the boxes you have. <laughs> so I've, I've got I've, I'm down to my last two boxes of 18 each uh, of the order I had. Uh, I had great um, advanced sales and uh, and I've had so many people ordering books and ordering books for uh, friends and family. So that that's really where it's at. 
Oh, fantastic. That is absolutely awesome. Um, I think you sent me a copy of it, and I haven't had a chance to read it. I, I For some reason, everyone sent all their books all at once, so I had like nine of them sitting on my coffee table trying to go through all of them. I think I'm down to my last three. <laughs> so I will get to your book. <laughs> so I apologize. It's just for it, it was in a one week period. All of a sudden, I had nine books all at once. And my husband looked at me like every day another couple of books were coming in. <laughs> so I'm getting through them. All right. Well, with me today is not my regular co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett. He's out doing, I believe, a book signing. Instead, as my guest co-host, I have State Florida State Representative Mike Hill. So, Mike, meet Bill Muckler. Bill, it's my honor to meet you. Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. And uh, actually, I'm calling from Florida. I live in Brevard County. I'm in Bill Posey's district. Oh, very good. I'm at the other end of the state. I'm up in Pensacola, Florida. Oh, great. Uh, a wonderful area. Actually, um, I, I was in the Marine Corps on active duty and uh, I think that your area, I think you'd probably cover as far west as, uh, I mean, far east as Panama City. Um, well, no, I'm a state representative, and I'm just in Escambia County, oh. which is more Pensacola. But okay. uh, at the congressional level, that's uh, Representative Matt Gates, and, yes, that does go over to Panama City. That's correct. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I love Pensacola. In fact, I was just up there uh, about two years ago. One of my best friends um, was a uh, retired uh, Marine Corps um, fighter pilot. Actually, he was the first Marine that ever flew Top Gun, and he passed away. And so uh, I went to the service, and I was uh, I I spoke at the uh, at the service at the Naval Air Station. It's a beautiful Naval Air Station there. Yes, so you must be familiar then with the Marine League that is here. Um, I'm friends with a number of the, the Marines. My son was a Marine for four years, and now he's a Escambia County Sheriff Deputy. Oh, wow. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm over here in Brevard County, uh, um, right right across the Indian River from um, the uh, Cape Canaveral um, uh, Space Center. And I'm the judge advocate of our Marine Corps League here, and I'm also in the um, uh, American Legion. I'm active in that, and I'm the secretary of the uh, Military Officers Association, Cape Canaveral chapter. And also we have a um, fantastic uh, Veterans Memorial Center here in uh, Brevard County, and I'm, the, I'm on the executive committee and the secretary of that as well. So I, I just came from there uh, uh, we're we're finally back open again. Finally, nothing like yeah. nothing like being well, retired with all this time on your hand. You seem yeah. you end up being busier than when you were working full time. Oh, for for sure. And and I'm and I'm writing a, a new book. I'm trying a novel, and I'm I hopefully I can um, I, I can make it so at least I'll, I'll enjoy it. Um, let, let me tell uh, let me tell you you guys about uh, my new book if you don't mind. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the first book I, I wrote uh, in this series is called 2020: A Clear Vision for America. What I did is I, I looked at all the problems that the political establishment in Washington D.C. has kind of imposed on the people, and I narrowed it down from like 35 uh, on the list down to the top 20. 
and then I I did a um, a cost benefit analysis of every one of them. I approached them just like I would in, uh, as a business person, and uh, so I came up with solutions for every one of them, and um, I. I used a lot of business techniques and uh, management principles and techniques as to uh, how to solve the problems. So, uh, and when I wrote it, though, I didn't write it like a textbook. I wrote it as um, I, I created some characters, and they uh, they tell the, the the they talk about the problems, and then they discuss the solutions um, as uh, they're riding in a car. So they I worked as a consultant, and we used to travel every Sunday night. We'd fly someplace, we'd rent a car, we'd go to a hotel, and then we'd work there all week at our on our clients' premises. And every day we'd ride in the car to work, and sometimes it was a half an hour to an hour, and then on the way home again, we did that every day. And so when we were in the car, we were always talking about problems. You know, we were talking about uh, sports and music and religion and politics and everything like that. So what I did is I, t- I took four characters that are riding in the car and they discuss all these problems. So I went out and uh, after I self-published that book, I was asked to do a lot of book signings. And as I, I went out, I would, I, I would talk to groups and I would, I would ask some questions. I, and one of the questions I, I always asked was, what are what are the uh, five rights that you're uh, that you have under the First Amendment of the uh, Bill of Rights? And I could never get an audience that could tell me more than three of them. And I thought this isn't right. Uh, and I kept hearing stories about if we don't uh, uh, know our Constitution, how will we know uh, how to protect it if somebody tries to take it away from us? We won't even know what they've taken away. So that got me interested in um, the consti- uh, more of the Constitution. I actually took an oath to, uh, to uh, defend the Constitution when I became an officer in the Marine Corps. So um, what I did is I wrote this book in three parts, and the first part is uh, restoring our Constitution, and the second part is uh, respecting our culture, and part three is reclaiming our country. And I added some characters to the to the book, and what they do is they uh, they kind of go. Did we just lo- lose Bill? I think Hello, we just Bill? lost Bill. I think yeah, we did. Yeah, his call His call dropped. He was saying some important things too. Yeah, and the, the the good question is is do we know what the five rights are under the First Amendment? And uh, one of them that I tout all the time is freedom of religion and the the inability actually government should not prohibit the free expression thereof of religion um freedom of speech of the press of people to peacefully assemble we just discussed that earlier and the last was to petition the government for redress so i got all five (laughs) you did i did very good annie that was good you hit all five of them yeah, you know, because we've talked about the lawsuits uh, about the bakery uh, that uh, got sued by the gay couple because he wouldn't do the wedding cake. Uh, that would be prohibiting his free expression of religion. And so I didn't understand why there would be a lawsuit for that. Um, it, freedom of speech. 
why do we have safe zones where they're only in this little tiny corner can you speak? You're not allowed to say freely what you think. Um, I had a member of my tea party. Uh, the judge said something to her, uh, dismissing whatever the charge was against her, and she goes, oh, thank God. And he goes, you cannot bring religion into this courtroom. You say that My again, goodness. and I will. No, excuse me? Where does it say in the Constitution that religion cannot exist in the courtroom? You swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So why are you prohibiting God anywhere in the world? That's right. You know, these are things that we have to understand, and we have to teach our young. And I wanted to ask Sandra, but, you know, she had to leave, and understandably, uh, what a lovely lady under such stress to be able to come onto the show and honor me with and you with their presence. Um, wanted to ask her what she thought the result of this COVID virus, what the result would be on education, because you notice a large number of these kids are now being homeschooled. Parents are becoming woken to what the left is teaching their kids. What do we think the future of these kids are that have been homeschooled? Will it bring up a larger conservative population than ever before in our nation? That's a question for you, Mike. Well, I'll I'll tell you, Annie, um, if there was a silver lining behind this COVID insanity, it was how many parents recognize that they could do um, homeschooling. You know, we, we have here, like in, uh, in Florida, where a fourth, because it started in March, a fourth of the school year, kids were at home being taught for a fourth of the year. And they were talking about perhaps not even opening up in the fall. But the question is, is that if for a fourth of the year, school year, uh, kids could be taught at home, why can't we do it for half the school year or even longer? And if we can do that, why on earth are we paying for all these buildings, the maintenance, and the administrative staff that go along with that? We've already demonstrated that it can be done from home. And the parents are showing that they can do a decent job at it. If they continue doing it, they'll do a good job at it. And we'll find then that our children can be taught what the parents want them to learn and not be indoctrinated by this leftist nonsense. Well, I'm hoping that this caller that just popped into the studio is our guest, Bill Muckler. Bill, is that back to you again? It is. Yeah, I I don't know what happened. I called on my landline, and all of a sudden it went dead on me, and I'm not sure where I was when I was talking, but I decided (laughs) I'd better call in on my cell phone and see if I have better luck with that. Bill, you were talking about your book and the three different sections of it, and the part that I'm really interested in is the third part where you talk about how we can reclaim America what some good solutions are. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because um, that, that's the, um, I, guess, I guess the part where um, I thought we really, we really need to, uh, if, if I'm going to write a book, we really need to have something to say uh, what our future can be. And uh, so um, one of the, uh, I guess, uh, 
when I get to that, chapter 15 is the, uh, there's 20 chapters in the book. Chapter 15 is the uh, first chapter in part three, and I call it the hidden enemy, the uh, the deep state. And I discuss, you know, how the deep state uh, came about and what it's all about. And a lot of people don't believe there is one. And I give some examples of uh, of uh, what the deep state is and what we really need to do to uh, uh, eliminate that. Because what we've ended up with is a permanent bureaucracy in uh, Washington, D.C. And I think we've seen that this week just in the Supreme Court, uh, the, you know, the rulings they're making. And uh, from there, then I went to... Uh, Rotation of authority, and uh, rotation of authority is uh, uh, all about term limits. And uh, the history of uh, uh, of our uh, uh, our founding fathers and what they thought about term limits, and how Benjamin Franklin uh, instituted term limits in uh, Pennsylvania, and um, that was something that they wanted to do, but they just never did get to it. And I never was for term limits until I've seen what's happening in. Uh, in Washington, D.C. in the past, uh, I guess, couple of decades. And um, I think that's something we probably need. And then I have a chapter uh, called uh, The System is Rigged. And that's about this uh, this fraud that uh, the Obama administration uh, put on us with this um, uh, QE, um, you know, uh, uh, problems with quantitative easing and I explained all that and why it's wrong and why it doesn't work and how we need to get out of that and then I also have a chapter on um, uh, how uh, what we need to do to uh, uh, capitalism I guess I gave kind of a history of capitalism I went all the way back to Plato's Republic and talked about how uh, he talked about uh, uh, capitalism and how uh, the uh, Pilgrims uh, came, uh, landed in Plymouth Rock, and they instituted socialism, and in three years they just about, you know, uh, uh, starved themselves out, and uh, it was a complete failure until they decided that they were going to institute a, a capitalist a capitalist uh, system whereby each person would have their own land and they could grow their own food and uh, and so forth, and that's what made them prosper, and that really is kind of... Uh, what led to um, how America prospered. So if I felt like if we understood how all these things came about and the history of them and uh, why they're so important, why they work, that uh, that would be a good way to uh, ensuring that we could uh, maintain a, um, a prosperous future for our children and our children's children. Well, you know, um, when you dropped off, I had asked Mike about what he thought uh, about the future generation. Because of this pandemic, we see a large number of kids now being homeschooled. And with that, the parents that are doing the homeschooling are finally waking up to what is being taught to these kids. Do you think that this means coming the future generations, we're going to see a more conservative nation? Uh I think it definitely will. Now, in my first book, I, I wrote a chapter on education, and I wrote quite a, a lengthy uh, section on the uh, values and benefits of homeschooling. I'm very much in favor of that, and I'm I'm really in favor of um, privatizing our education system because our public schools have now become uh, government indoctrination centers, and uh, 
and they're being taught socialism and communism, uh, and they're indoctrinated. They're not really taught how to critically think. Well, I've been saying this ever since you've known me, that all politics start at home. Um, it's, it's Unless you are aware of what is going on, you may think that uh, even though you don't have kids, you shouldn't have to consider anything about the school system. But when you open up your tax bill, it's going to hit you just how much you're paying for something that's giving out poor quality. So you have a lot to there saying that to privatize education, which was never intended to be a public system, uh, to bring it back exactly. to the local, yeah, to having churches do it, having institutes uh, set up to do that. So you have a choice about where to send your child. And one thing I love is Camilla Harris, when she went on that rant about busing and how much of yeah. a hard time she had busing. Well, I was one of the victims of busing. The school that I should have been attending, but I did attend for a year, was only four and a half blocks away from our house. My parents didn't have to worry about us, you know, getting back and forth to school because we were right there. I attended it for one year, and next year busing was instituted. But the problem was I had two younger siblings. I had to make sure that they got on their bus and got to school. By the time my bus came, I couldn't get on it. I had to walk literally two miles to go to school to attend for two years until I rotated around to junior high and then I was half a mile from school and I could walk. So for two solid years, I never took the bus to school, but I was able to ride the bus back home. So Camilla Harris, really tell me how hard a time you had. Yeah, that. Uh, that was really a, a sad, sad story that I, I don't think most uh, many people really believed. Uh, in fact, I don't even know if there was any truth to it at all. Well, you know, Bill, in your book, 2020 uh, Plan, one of the items that you stated that you recommend is that the United States leave the United Nations. And that they instead establish a new organization. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, please. Okay, yeah, that's in my first book. And I I, I looked at it and I thought, okay, what's the history of the U.N.? And uh, the U.N. has never really been favorable to the United States. And I I think that whole system is rigged as well with the – you know, the five powers that really uh, control the uh, the entire organization of 195 countries. And so what we're doing is we're putting a lot of money into into an organization that's run by people who have don't have our interest at heart and uh, are really against us. And they they vote against us eight, about 80 percent of the time on anything we vote on. They usually vote against us. So um, I, I just couldn't see what the value was of being in with uh, in, in a league with all these uh, dictators and, and people who really don't have our, our country's interests at heart. And I think we could do a lot more for the world if we just uh, start our own organization and start out with maybe a handful uh, of uh, countries that are like-minded like us and uh, uh, with democratic uh, values and uh, human rights values and, and build from there and then start helping countries, not with foreign aid, but actually uh, helping them more develop 
their cultures and their infrastructures and uh, their education systems and, uh, you know, uh, uh, helping them build power plants and water treatment plants and uh, schools. I think that would do more for uh, countries around the world that we could help rather than just uh, sending uh, millions and billions of dollars to uh, dictators. You know, Bill, I've said this many times. The best way to control our borders is to pull any uh, funding that we give to countries like Guatemala and Mexico and say you're not going to get another penny from us until you control your border and stop sending people here illegally. If we do that, I think we would have no problem with legal immigration. Yes, I, I agree. In fact, uh, one of the chapters in my new book is uh, is uh, entitled "Who Are These People?" and uh, I talk about you know all the various uh, uh, people that that, Im- that illegally immigrate into our country. We've got a great uh, uh, immigration system. It could probably use a little bit of fine tuning if you really get into the ten step program and really start studying everything. If we just followed that. Uh, I think we would do very well. And uh, like I said, you could fine-tune a, a few parts of it a little bit, but I don't think anybody's ever really studied that uh, uh, our, our current immigration system except the legal immigrants who come over here and learn more about our country than most of our citizens do. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to ask you about DACA because the Supreme Court just made a ruling. and. Yeah, I, I, I've said this many times. I think someone's got the goods on John Roberts, which is why he votes the way he, he's been voting lately. Someone's blackmailing him. There can be no other explanation for the way he votes. But they had this ruling that said um, that Trump didn't follow the former procedures of the Administrative Procedure Act. Well, President Obama didn't follow those procedures either when he instituted DACA. He did it as a policy, not as an executive order. So Trump turns around and says, well, this is an illegal policy. I'm going to rescind it. But because he didn't go through the Administrative Procedure Act, they're saying that his action was not constitutional. Somehow or other, it gives the public the idea that DACA is a legal act. But that's not true. Yes, it's it's not and I think what's happened with Roberts is I think I think he's a never trumper for one thing, and uh, I think he also has gotten into the Washington D.C. Uh, uh, cabal of the uh, ultra leftists and uh, and is starting to think that way. And even Gorsuch uh, uh, went went the other way uh, on that uh, decision. But uh, the thing that I listen to is. I keep hearing them talk uh, talk about, oh, all these innocent young kids who are now, you know, they're serving in our military and they're doing all these great things in school and everything. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe there's a handful of them that are doing that, but how about half of them that are all uh, criminals who are either in jail or, or you know, uh, uh, committing some sort of felonies or another? And uh, we're supposed to just carte blanche, say every one of them uh, gets complete amnesty? It, that doesn't make any sense to me either. Yeah, now, Mike, I know that you've got to leave in a few minutes because you've got a prior engagement. But I want to let people know that you are up for reelection and that you have a campaign website out there. You want to give it? Oh, yes. Thank you, Annie. Um, it's very simple. 
Vote Mike Hill. That's H-I-L-L. VoteMikeHill.com. And uh, they can go there and see where I stand on issues. They can send me a note. I respond. And they can even contribute to the campaign if they like. It's a VoteMikeHill.com. Well, thank you for that. As a matter of fact, on the video that's up on Facebook, I've got your little campaign sign next to you. <laughs> so oh. people can understand it. <laughs> I pulled it off your webpage. So thank you, Anne. see your smiling face. Oh, all the time. Well, thank you for co-hosting with me, stepping in last minute with uh, Curtis uh, out of town. But uh, it, it, there's a lot going on, and we need more people like you, Mike, out there running for office. And uh, – now that I have my mom here living with us, I had given a little toying of thought of going to my run for my county council seat. And uh, she saw some of the stuff I was reading to her out of the newspaper. And she's looking at me like, are you really going to do this? I might. I- I'm mulling over the thought. But, you know, we need powerful conservative voices out there to make sure our government stays where it should be. Small, confined, and responsible to we the people. Not we the people responsible to them, Mike. Am I getting that right or wrong? Absolutely. You know, there are enumerated powers, in other words, stated limited powers in our Constitution that's given to the government, and too often politicians are elected who ignore that. Um, Their powers are given to them by the consent of the governed, and it's almost seemed to have been flipped on its head to where now the, the politicians are telling the constituents, what they can and cannot do, and not the other way around. And I know Bill, as a captain in the United States Marine Corps, you and I, I was a captain in the Air Force, we took very similar oaths to support, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And when we took that oath, Bill, it wasn't... Um, a temporary oath. It didn't stop once we uh, left our military service. That's a lifetime oath. And, and, and we need to have more Americans recognize the beauty and power of that Constitution and what it has meant to help create the most powerful nation the world has ever seen. Mike, thank you for saying that because, yes, we took an, we took an identical oath and uh, People can find it online if they, if they want to. Uh, I actually uh, gave a speech at the Military Officers Association, and I talked about the Constitution. I put that up on the screen, and I said, I'm going to take the oath. And I had 60 uh, military officers, retired military officers, stood up and raised their hand, and they, they reaffirmed uh, their uh, their oath. And it was it was just a fantastic uh and yeah, we've we've got a lot of great people that feel the same way. And I, I wish you all the luck in the world. I certainly hope that uh, you you win, and uh, you're the kind of person we need. Well, thank you, thank you. It's it's looking good for me now, but you can't take a race for granted. You you have to work like you're ten points down, and that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. That's an amen to and, that. Amen. Annie, and thank I, you so I much for up. having me. It is my pleasure, Mike Hill. Check it out, Mike Hill, votemikehill.com. Mike, we'll be speaking again. You're always Absolutely. welcome as my guest co-host. You know that. Thank You're my you, two-go guy. <laughs> it's always <laughs> right. enjoyable. You have such great guests. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. God bless. All right, check them out, votemikehill.com. Um, and if you're in the Florida area in his district, vote for him. Anyway, Bill, it's you and I now. Um, I was supposed to have Gordon Chan step in at this point, uh, but the recording of the interview I did with him crapped out. It only got my side of the conversation. So anyone tuning in expecting Gordon Chan, I'm going to have to redo the interview and put it up at a later date. So I apologize. I screwed up. I don't know what I did, but you can only hear my voice and not him. And he had some wonderful answers, too. So we have with us now Bill Muckler. His website is 2020AmericanBook.com. Dot com, And I had so many things that I'm going to ask you about. Um, Trump just gave an executive order on policing, and I read through it, and it bothered me because I remember uh, what Clinton did when he started to give grants to uh, different police departments for community policing. Back then when Clinton was in office, everyone was talking about community policing, having the cops more involved in the neighborhood uh, so there's less friction between police and the community, which is a fantastic idea. If you if you think back, Bill, to when you were a kid, you knew who the local cop was. They were involved in the community, and you respected the police, and the police gave you the same respect back. You know, what you're just saying, that that's nothing new. I, I'm going to be 85 this summer, so I can remember back to, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor days. And the police have always been that way. The problem is not with the police. The problem is with the people who commit the crimes and the way they uh, react uh, to the police and their their behaviors, which really compounds the the issues. This, this whole thing, I think, is just um, it, 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 we've we've taken uh, people who are misinformed, and we've uh, and the media has just uh, pumped them with. Uh, uh, so much false information, and nobody's looking at the at the statistics of it, and uh, the whole thing has just gotten completely out of hand. And uh, all these reforms are talking about how's that going to happen? Because police are local. Is what Trump doing going to affect my local police here in uh, Cocoa, Florida, little town of Cocoa, Florida, or our sheriff? By the way, I I was with our sheriff this morning. We did a uh, a uh, uh, Facebook uh, uh, on our uh, Independence Day parade that we're going to have. Uh, uh, the sheriff and our veterans center uh, is involved in that. Uh, we're co co sponsors on that, and uh, that, that's not going to affect them. How, how is our sheriff going to uh, be affected by this uh, referendum or whatever it is that uh, that Trump has signed? And I can't believe he signed it either. Uh, I didn't agree with it. No, I'm not. And it it contains three components of the executive order. The first is creating credentialing and certification programs in every police department across the nation. What the heck is that? You know, that's normally up to the state. The state will turn around and say, at least these are the requirements we have that you must comply with in order to be recognized as a law enforcement agency. That's a state job. That is not a federal job. These, we're not federal officers. We are local officers, local Leos. You know, I answered to New York City. It doesn't mean that the federal government should be determining what New York City needs are. New York City knows what its needs are. Like my local community here in Beaufort, where you went through the Marine Corps Paris Island Boot Camp. Um, we know what our needs are. So who are they 
to tell us what credentials we need, what certifications we need. You know, Annie, and you're really, really hitting on a, a, a fantastic issue here. I shouldn't say fantastic. It's a horrible issue. Is that the federal government is overreaching everything. This country was uh, was founded by the states creating a, a republic, and now they've completely turned it around where the federal government is is on top and uh, issuing uh, what the states are supposed to be doing in every area, including uh, police. And let's let's face it, police is local. Uh, we we have a sheriff for our county. We have a we have a, a police force for the city I live in, Cocoa, Florida, and that. Uh, how how is the federal government going to control that? And the whole thing looks to me like. Do you recall when Obama was going to create the million man police force? Remember, there was a mm-hmm. talk about that about ten years ago, and at that time I thought, oh no, this can't possibly happen, and I think. I, I hear statistics. We have about 800,000 uh, police in the United States. So the million-man police force would completely eliminate our policemen. And I think what what they really had in mind was these would be blue hats, if you know what I mean by blue hats. Well, UN if I UN remember- peacekeepers would be our our new our new police force. Well, I was thinking of it in a different way because the first thing that Hitler did was take control of all the local police forces. Yep. And once he controlled all the local police forces, he controlled the entire nation. That's the way I'm looking at it. Now, under Clinton, when he came out with these grants for community policing, he was tying a lot of strings to it, a lot of requirements that the departments had to run through these little hoops. But all the departments looked at it was like, oh, there's money coming my way. So, all right, the the guidelines don't look too bad. But once they set that precedent, they open the door for what now I'm seeing in this executive order. is opening it wide open for now government to take control of the police, which is basically what they're doing. Yeah, and and if if you're relying on their money, they're not giving that money without taking control. So uh, with the money comes the control. Um. And How does someone put it? I heard sad. someone put it this way. I heard someone put it this way. Someone once said, with the dollars comes the collars, meaning you're going to be leashed. Yep. The second part is also disturbing on this. The first is the credentialing and certification programs, which will have grants attached to them also. Information sharing, creating a national database that can track office, officers. Now, it should be up to the department to turn around and say, listen, I've got this problem officer and determine what the discipline should be or retraining should be. That's how most departments work. I would say less than 3% of any department would have any bad officer. Out of those bad officers, it may be just behavior. Only 1% or less would prove to be criminal. So usually retraining, counseling works to put the officer back on track or you dismiss them. But what happens to a small department where you have friction between the officer and the bosses and somebody may get something put bad in their record simply because the boss doesn't like them. 
does that personal interaction create a problem for that officer? Now they go in a national database, which can be under a FOIA. So now the, that officer's information can go out to the general public. I see a lot of pitfalls in this. Do you? Uh, absolutely. And I hadn't thought about the Freedom of Information Act, but yes, that, that, that's a possibility. I guess anybody could uh, request that information on uh, them. And to me, I, I think the whole thing is just uh, it, it, it's just a, a way of trying to take control of the federal government and the, and the uh, permanent bureaucracy trying to take control over the country. Because let's face it, you know, we talk about uh, bad cops. All, we hear about bad cops, and I don't believe uh, it bad cops. It'd be like uh, saying there's bad Marines. There's no bad Marines. Sometimes Marines do things they shouldn't do, and they get put in the brig, right? And so I guess mm-hmm. cops sometimes do some things they shouldn't do. They exhibit bad behavior you know, or uh, poor judgment, and uh, that needs to be corrected. But, the, you know, just come out and say bad cops, and that really kind of turns me off. I'm, I, I don't agree with that at all. But let's say a, a policeman wants to uh, move uh, from one area to another area, so we say, well, we have to have a national database. Well, no, we don't have to have a national database because I would think that most police departments have some sort of a uh, human relations uh, department, and they probably check references. And I think that's that should suffice. I, I don't know that we need to uh, uh, have the federal government involved with a with a database. You know, on top of which, if you remember, the government is now putting a lot of their databases up on the cloud. Tell me it's not going to be hacked. And they're using private (laughs) industry to put this up on the cloud, and we're going to trust this private industry not to get hacked. You know, New York State tried several times to expose the name of anyone that had a concealed weapons permit or permit for a firearm. Then when that didn't work out, they said, well, we need to expose the name of anyone that's a law enforcement officer. Oh, that's really going to work out real well. You just arrested Joe Blow for whatever, and he's going to show up on your front doorstep while you're there home with your family asleep at night and think that you're not going to be harassed or attacked. You're asking us to protect and serve, but who is going to us? And this is, this is I see, a major problem with a database like this. I agree. I agree. You're, you're really bringing up some good points there. And the final component, and this one scares me the most, the final component is incentivize co-responder programs. This means having mental health experts accompany officers on responses to, quote, nonviolent calls, unquote, involving homelessness, addiction, and other mental health issues. Every single call, I don't care if it's a little fender bender or someone tripping on the sidewalk, Every officer must approach it as if it is a violent call. You have to be on guard all the time, every second. When you're not, that's when bad things happen. So to assume you're responding to a homeless person or a person that has an uh, addiction problem uh, or a person with a mental health issue and assuming it's going to be a nonviolent call is asking for pure trouble. And then having a civilian on that call, someone who's, quote, a mental health expert, 
These very same mental health experts that want to make pedophilia legal, really? I want that person on a call with me and trust them to have my back? I don't think so. You know, you, you're you're really on a roll, and I got to tell you, I, I had not thought about that part of it either uh, because all I thought was, well, where are we going to find these people and how are we going to train them, you know, and I just didn't give it that much more thought. But uh, you're right, and I, I have I have no way that I could ever trust anybody like that. If if I was a policeman, and I, I guess I never was, but uh, being in the military, I guess I kind of understand the structure of it and so forth. And being an officer in the military, I, I was responsible for you know universal uh, uh, code of military justice, all that type of thing. But uh, what what are we going to do? Uh, have have a um, uh, a psychologist or, or a sociologist uh, riding every police car with the, with every policeman? How much is that going? Does that, does that mean we're going to have to have eight hundred thousand of them? Uh, not only that, how is it going to be paid for? Oh yeah, the grants, the federal grants. <laughs> so if you want the yeah, extra then, money, it's going to come from a federal grant. No, wait a minute. Now. Who is paying for these grants? Oh, it's going to come out of the taxes. Oh, that means you're going to have to raise our taxes to create these grants, burden these law enforcement agencies with these civilian alleged mental health experts. What do you mean by a mental health expert? Is that a social worker or is that a licensed psychiatrist? Then what wage are you going to be giving these individuals? Oh, and by the way, what's going to happen if they end up getting injured responding to one of these calls? Who is going to take care of that injury? Or, God forbid, a death? Well, you got me. I I don't know how it's (laughs) going to work either. (laughs) You're bringing up so many points on this. Um, But, uh, gosh, uh, it just just goes to show that uh, uh, so much of this stuff is just... uh, it's just uh, it's just putting uh, trying to put lipstick on the on you know the old saying trying to put lipstick on the uh, on the pig you know uh, it, what good is it going to possibly do us to have all this and here we just have to get back to police or, or local and the police I know and and I, and I know some of them I have some good friends that were career police and so forth they they know how to handle these things we're talking like. These these people are like uh, you know uh, poorly programmed robots or something like that. They they, they get great training and uh, many of them are very intelligent. Uh, I would say most of them are and and, uh, and they're mostly very good people. Uh, I shouldn't even say mostly. They are good people who uh, are really working hard to uh, keep our uh, community safe. The, the whole part of this is they want all this, all the people who don't break the laws pay a ton of money in taxes to try and control the people who break the laws. And uh, we, we're, just, we're, we're just putting all this emphasis in the wrong direction. We should be putting the emphasis on how do we stop crime, not how do we uh, c- uh, control the police. Exactly. And one final thing before I let you go. Oh, there's, I love this. Uh, under the certification and credentials, it states 
state and local law enforcement agencies must constantly assess and improve their practices. I would say 99.9% of them do that constantly anyway to ensure a transparent, safe, and accountable delivery of law enforcement services to the community. So they want to put in additional procedures to these law enforcement agencies. And if you live in a small town, what is the cost? Can that small town afford it? What's going to happen is you see small town law enforcement going to the wayside and letting county or state law enforcement take over those policing procedures. And under the same section, it says state or local law enforcement agencies use of force policies must adhere to all applicable federal, state, and local laws. It already does. It already does. Yes. You know, you've got an officer that's sitting behind bars right now because he put his knee on a suspect. He did not adhere to policy, and he broke the law. Now, on the other side, you've got two officers that got arrested for following the law, doing everything right, agency has broken the law by falsely charging them. So, yeah. Well, what are we going to yeah, do what, about what happened justice? on that is the 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 district attorney uh, from Atlanta actually uh, didn't even uh, stop the the Georgia state uh, investigation. The, the I guess they call it the uh, the GBI uh, from continuing the investigation. So he made all these charges uh, without even having an investigation. And just two weeks prior to that, he talked about how a taser was a, considered a daily uh, deadly weapon. And then he gets on TV, and I watched his whole uh, uh, his whole uh, presentation. It took about forty five or fifty minutes, as I recall, earlier this week, and uh, where he outlined all these eleven charges, and he talked about uh, the taser is not a deadly weapon, and he just completely ignored the fact that this guy really overpowered these two uh, cops. I mean, really put up a tremendous fight on him. I, it's on the video. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, Bill, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm going to do our dedication to our fallen hero before my next guest comes on. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, apologize. Um, people can find you at your website, which is 2020americabook.com, Correct. That's correct. Thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure being on with you. And anytime, and if you need uh, me as a substitute uh, co-host or whatever, just let me know. Oh, I will keep it in mind. Thank you so much, and God bless for the work you do. So. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, God save our America. <laughs> I, amen. Amen. Check it out, Bill Muckler, 2020americabook.com. Uh, we're going to go into our dedication uh, that we normally do at the start of the show. Um, again, if you were expecting Gordon Chan, I blew it. I messed up the interview. Uh, I got the, recorded only my half of the conversation, not his, so I'm going to have to call him and redo it and put it up at a later date. Uh, but today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Catherine Mary Tyne of Newport News Police Department in Virginia. Her end of watch was Thursday, January 23rd of this year. And this is from the Navy Times, and it is also from, let me turn the pages, from In-Depth out of New Hampshire. And it reads, a 24-year-old police officer in Virginia died after being dragged by a vehicle during a traffic stop, and the driver is facing charges that include felony homicide. 
Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew said during an emotional press conference. Katie Tyne was one of two police officers who were standing by the driver's side door of a vehicle when it accelerated forward and drove a block before slamming into a tree, Drew said. The driver's side door was open, and the officers had just asked the driver to step out of the car. One officer was able to step out of the way, and she was not, Drew said. He said Tyne was pinned between the door and the tree. She was flown to a hospital in nearby Norfolk, where she died from her injuries. Katie was a true hero, Drew said, who took long pauses during a news conference to regain his composure. She had been here a short time with us, but she made a big impact on this department, the chief said. She was full of life. She was always smiling, always. Drew identified the driver as Vernon Green II. He said that Green's vehicle was pulled over because the officers were investigating a drug complaint. He said they smelled a strong odor from the car. The chief said Green was arrested after a short foot chase. Besides felony homicide charge, Drew said Green faces charges of eluding police and possessing narcotics. Time was from New Hampshire and had served in the Navy before joining the Newport News Police Department. She remained in the Navy Reserve. Drew said that Tyne leaves behind a two-year-old daughter and a partner, as well as her mother, father, stepfather, and brother. This is what she wanted to do, he said. She wanted to be in law enforcement, and she wanted to do it in this city. She was very active in the community. Sometimes we try to teach that. But she got it. MUR in New Hampshire reported the time was from Hudson and a 2013 graduate of Alverine High School. Newport News is a city of 180,000 people that sits along the James River near the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. It's home to a shipyard that builds the nation's aircraft carriers and is near the world's largest Navy base in Norfolk. The Navy Times editors note, Logistics Specialist Third Class Catherine Mary Tyne enlisted in the Navy on September 9th of 2013. According to her military records, she served on board the aircraft carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, from May 1st of 2014 through July 6th of 2017, and then was assigned to Naval Station Norfolk until she exited active duty on September 8th of 2018. She joined the Navy Reserve's Operational Support Unit in Norfolk on March 12th of 2019. A funeral was held at the Immaculate Conception Church in Lowell, New Hampshire, for Newport News Virginia Officer Katie Tyne, who was killed in the line of duty. Hundreds of officers from across the country lined the streets and entrance to the church. The casket was carried in by members of the Newport News Virginia Police Department. Civilians also lined the street of Lowell, showing respect as the motorcade went by. Comfort dogs from multiple police departments were at the church to comfort family members and attendees of the services. As the casket was carried from the church, the dogs with their handlers stood near the entrance of the church. As Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew and Times fiance Brittany Lewis saluted the hearse containing the casket as it left the church, heading for the cemetery. Today's show is dedicated to police officer Catherine Mary Tyne.
It is also dedicated to all of the members of the first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to the brave men and women that serve in uniform in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its marvelous future. We dedicate to them at this time in need of this country. My name is America by Todd Allen Herringdon. May God bless each and every one.
in the final part of the dedication to uh, police officer Catherine Mary Tyne, who also Navy reservist, I say this, the sailor's prayer. Lord, hear my prayer. Send your angels to guard well we sailors serving in your fleet. Protect us from harm or defeat. Give us guidance and wisdom to pursue diplomacy instead of war, peace instead of hatred, life over death. When I die, permit me appear first at your gate. Allow the devil to think I am late. And before he realizes his mistake, grant me entrance and assign me to serve life eternal in your heavenly fleet. We're back, and you're here listening to Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart, whatever. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick, and waiting for our next guest to call in. Um, There's a lot that we're going to be talking about, and I apologize for not being able to give you the interview uh, with Gordon Chang. Uh, because I messed up the recording of it somehow or other, and I'm going to have to call him and redo the interview after I figure out what the heck I did wrong. So, I don't know. I'm not perfect. (laughs) I never said I would be, but uh, we'll we'll get our act together sooner or later. Um, Okay. I don't even know where I'm at right now. Uh, uh, There's something that really bothers me. Um, there's certain pieces of information that don't get out there because of mainstream media. And I wanted to bring this to people's attention. It was up on the Gateway Pundit. I'm definitely not posting any pictures of this. Uh, but it turns out this gun-running warlord, Raz, from Chaz, that's got uh, Seattle in lockdown uh, because of these new uh, what, what do you want to call it? Anarchy zone? Whatever you want to call it. They call it Chaz or Chop or whatever they're calling it. Well, Gateway Pundit, God bless Jim Holt, he ran down the fact that this guy played and led a role in a production of film that was put out there of a white girl being gang raped by black men. And he had posted some of the pictures of it, and it was really very graphic. Um, he also has a studio in Seattle where he no doubt produced his films. So this guy puts himself out there as a film productionist, uh, a director, whatever you want to call it, it's production, production Raz. And somehow he has a connection to the government in Dubai. He has a rather lavish lifestyle. Um, question, do you think anyone else in mainstream media is going to be talking about this guy? The fact that he has this, and in the film, it's also a snuff film, where he kills someone in the film. Now, looking at some of the pictures that he, Gateway Pundit had up on his website of this film, uh, my question was whether or not this was an enactment, or if this was, in fact, actually occurring to this poor woman. And that's something I'd like to find out, whether or not this poor woman literally ended up being raped to make this film that Raz has put out there and is making money on. So, you know, there's a lot of questions we have about what's going on in Seattle. A lot of questions we have that's going on (laughs) throughout the rest of the United States. And this is what we're getting from the liberal-leaning governors, states. So, you know, there's a lot of questions out there. A lot of questions out there. 
Um, but here's something also I wanted to bring up, because everything that's going on with the Antifa, uh, with Raz handing out AR-15s, with the open lawlessness, um, a couple of nights ago at the border of Chaz or Chop or whatever they want to call it, there was a dumpster fire. So what do they do? They end up calling 911 and asking the fire department to respond. Now, here they don't want any government at all, so they create their own government. And they say, we don't need your police. We don't need your emergency services. We don't need your fire department. We're going to rule ourselves. But they get a little dumpster fire at their border, and who do they call? They call the real firefighters to come and rescue them. In the interim, they're handing out AR-15s to gang members and having them patrol. I mean, kids. Some of them are just kids. The chat room that uh, there is a personal video on hot EP. Um, I don't know what that is. Uh, boy, if you've got a link, put the link up there um, so maybe people can actually see that. But um, I'm waiting for our guest to call in. Seems like he's a little bit late, uh, but. Hopefully we'll keep on rolling. We'll keep on rolling. There are good things going on out there. You know, with that, everyone thinks that the world is going nuts. There's still sanity out there, guys. There is some, still some sanity. There are people out there that have goodness in them, and I think it's going to shine through. All said and done, Antifa is shooting themselves in their own foot. We're going to see them go down the same way we saw Occupy Wall Street. The way, same way we see a lot of these others. And I think Black Lives Matter movement is also going to start fizzling out. We're seeing company after company and organization after organization kneel to them. And that keeps on asking the very same question over and over again. If Black Lives Matter so much, why aren't they going after Planned Parenthood and stopping the genocide, millions of aborted black children? That's something to think about. Meanwhile, we do have our next guest in up on the line. And let's bring in, if my computer will cooperate, Riley Waters. He's the Senior Policy Analyst for Economics at the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Riley. How are you today? Hi, good. How are you? Oh, I'm having one of those days <laughs> where nothing seems <laughs> to go right. You ever have oh, no. Yeah, yeah, uh, many more these days, I think, than the normal. <laughs> well, I was discussing some of the stuff. I, I've lost my co-host. You know, he, State Senator uh, Mike Hill had to leave because he had in a meeting, so I got left a little high and dry. And I was supposed to have an interview with Gordon Chang just before you came on the air because I figured two pieces involving China with Gordon, a friend of mine, doing it. But I didn't record it properly. So or anyone trying to listen to it would only hear my voice and not his. So I'm going to have to call Gordon and his wife and just apologize and redo the interview and put it up later on because I had so many great questions I asked him, and he's always such a wonderful person to speak with. But oh, we're yeah. going along the same line, and I'm going to ask you, will America's economy recover faster than we will see in China? Because now they're coming back with another outbreak of the COVID virus, and they've closed down their schools now. Uh, are we going to see something happen here? 
Well, I believe we will recover before China. Um, and so I, I recently wrote about this for the Daily Signal. And I, I posit just a, a simple theory behind it. And it's just because of the culture that we have. Um, you know, America is based on, uh, you know, free markets and capitalism. And, it's, and it is our strength, honestly. It's not, and it's not a strength that the Chinese economy necessarily has. Um, when you look at the data, when you look at what we have, we have an economy that's very consumer-driven. And consumption makes up roughly 70% of all of our economic activity, if you're, if you're measuring it a certain way. That's just not the case in China. In China, um, it's closer to 55 58%. Uh, I mean, it's significant, of course, but in the United States, it, it excels. And what we've been seeing over the last couple months anyway is – uh, for example, retail price, uh, re- retail sales uh, in China, they just haven't rebound. I mean, they're they're they've been negative and they've been not as negative as they've been, so they've been increasing, <laughs> but still negative. Unlike in the United States, where we just recently saw positive growth in our retail sales, and so I, I go to posit that that is that is one of the simple reasons why the U.S. economy will recover before China's. I completely agree because we've seen an increase of 17.7% in the last reporting of our retail sales. You know, our country is opening up, but there's a different mindset between what we think here in the United States and how we, we act compared to how China does. They're not accustomed to a free market economy. They're not accustomed to owning a business. They're starting to learn. But the problem is is that any business that exists must have at least two communist Chinese members on board. So it's not a free market at all. And, uh, you know, as much as we talk about China as this uh, great economic power, when you actually look at the, the per capita, right, when you actually look at the person or the family and the wealth that they have, I mean – Pound for pound, we're just we're simply wealthier than than China, um, and that again goes to reflect on so many different levels. It, it goes to reflect on the ability for us to buy nicer things. It it goes on to actually show that it's one of the reasons why we have such a large trade deficit with China is because we can buy things from them uh, much more than they can buy things from us, um, and so there's there's differences in sort of the economies as well. Absolutely. You know, uh, you have where you're, you're brought up in China, you know, you're told what fields you will be working in, what things you'll be lear- learning. Not whereas the United States, we grow up and we don't have a set path before us. Uh, we choose what we do. We choose where to go to school. We choose what field to work in. And choice is not something they have, which I believe is also one of our things that drive our economy. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you bring up employment um, because one of the big issues, I mean, obviously, if we're trying to compare economies and uh, just sort of the robust strength, uh, differences in strength from our economies, employment is, is, an, is a great example of why we're going to rebound much further than, much quicker than China. Because if you look at the unemployment rate, yes, it is terrible, uh, you know, 20 million Americans uh, out of out of work, but uh, in in China you have estimates as high as 70 million because they have 
you know, almost 100,000 workers who have to migrate between provinces who are just completely left out of their official statistics because the Chinese governments don't value their work uh, as much as, let's say, um, uh, urban workers or uh, uh, people who work just stay within one province. And so the unemployment rate there is it's much higher and it's going to be much harder to, I think, fill. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're both going to have struggles going forward, and so that's one of the reasons why we need to stay vigilant uh, through these tough times. But, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a matter of uh, relative uh, strength. And so for the United States, it's, it's not, I don't think it's going to be as much of a problem as it will be for China. Yeah, because China prior to communism had a large agricultural you know, sector, very large. When communism came in, they started herding everyone into urban centers, better to control the people. So trying to phase back into that, it's not going to happen under communism. You know, they don't believe in the family farm that used to be self-sufficient. They want you sufficient, you know, dependent upon the government. So, which is another reason why we will recover faster because we know how to be self-sufficient. Right. Yeah. It's, it's everything. And, um, yeah, it's so it's it's one of the things I wrote about. Yeah, if, if if people are interested, they can find the article in the Daily Signal. Um, you know, it talks a little bit more about things like uh, issues that China has been dealing with. One one thing I mentioned, for example, is the food prices in China. Um, you know, Chinese uh, because they're not as wealthy, they have to spend uh, much more um, much more of their income, uh, take-home income on on items like food than most Americans. And so uh, a problem that they've had uh, before even COVID began uh, started last year with what was called the, uh, the, the African swine flu pandemic. This, this disease came, came throughout China and killed basically a quarter of all their pigs. Uh, and so pig prices have skyrocketed over the last year, and that in turn has also increased the price of substitutes like beef and lamb as well. And so that's, that's really put uh, down pressure on their consumption ability. And so when, you're, when you have to spend more on things like food, you can't spend much, you can't spend more on things like, you know, uh, cell phones or uh, cars or, or clothes. Well, that's one thing that the Chinese government wants. They don't want you on the Internet. They don't want you traveling. But you mentioned the migrant workers, but the COVID outbreak went really pandemic when you had the Lunar New Year celebration, which is a month-long celebration. People travel hundreds of miles to go with family. They eat off a communal plate. You know, the spread of the virus was not noticeable to the West until the Lunar New Year celebration. And I had two friends right. of mine that were missionaries in that province at the time of the outbreak. You know, they had a knock on the door, the Chinese you know, police official, whatever they were, knocked on the door and said, no, you're American, so we're not going to take care of you. You're going to have to figure out how to get yourselves out of China if you want to go. Otherwise, you're on lockdown with everyone else. You know, it, it frightened the heck out of them, but they were able to finally get out, and then now they're thankfully back home. But they, we don't understand, you know, how it spreads so fast because we don't understand their culture. There's, I mean, there's a lot of research out there. I mean, there's still a lot of unknown, but there's, there's some good research out there that suggests, you know, just 
the number of uh, folks in, in, infected with this virus in China has, has always been and continues to be much higher than what's publicly um, reported. But you mentioned the Lunar New Year, and I, that's actually a good point I also mentioned in this piece. Um, you know, it, it, it is a huge uh, holiday for them, and that is when a lot of consumption happens. And so, <clears throat> you know, the, the COVID outbreak really did begin just as they were going into that New Year, um, the Lunar New Year. Historically speaking, the, the Lunar New Year makes up around 3% of their total annual consumption, right? And so it's, it's almost like if uh, Christmas was canceled, right? Just imagine someone said, I don't know, we're not doing it this year, no more gifts. Uh, you know, it, it would, it, if that happened to the United States, that would be significant. It happened in China. Uh, and so that's that's one of the effects that we're seeing right now. And they're not going to be able to make that up throughout the rest of the year. You know, it's not like you can, I mean, you can try. You can try and make a fake holiday built around consumption. But it's not something that always happens organically. So it's going to be hard. One of the next big uh, holidays in China is Singles Day, which is November 11th, one 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 for for being single, <laughs> and so that that is a, a a big day for consumption as well. But it's just it doesn't compare to what they lost uh, at at the beginning or at the end of January this year. No, it's not. But China has been trying to do certain things to corner markets. For example, the personal protection equipment that they hoarded. Now that uh, yeah, I mean, party officials, uh, that's one of the problems with their state-owned enterprises is that, you know, the reason why they have so many and because they're so unprofitable, but they, you know, despite being unprofitable, they still remain is because uh, at the end of the day, it, it does help blind the pockets of, um, you know, provincial officials or just other party officials. And so it's, um, you know, it's, it's a problem with, of, of corruption. Now, um, going through the uh, Heritage website, I came across an article uh, about the quad, the quadrangle, uh, quad. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> Quadrilateral <laughs> strategic dialogue, yes. <laughs> yeah, which is between the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. And this is something I discussed with Gordon also. But they also have uh, plus partners, South Korea, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised to see Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, even though it is a communist nation, is more Western than China is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, you know, Vietnam has its own, you know, just uh, cloudy history with with China. You know, it's it's not like it's they're on the same page, right? Even though both governments are in in essence communist by name, the way that their governance structure it folds out is completely different. And, and with that, the relationships between their governments and the United States government is different. But I, I think one of the reasons why they're included is for twofold. It, it, one is they are a, a potential um, security, I don't want to say a partner, but uh, uh, some, a, a, um, uh, a player, a key security player within the region. Uh, but two, if we're looking at the economics of all this, and when we look at the last two years of uh, what the Trump administration has been doing, uh, talking about moving manufacturing out of China, the number one location that that manufacturing is going to first is Vietnam. 
And so, uh, you know, if you think about going forward, building on that and building uh, the foundation for a good U.S.-Vietnam relationship going forward, I think is really important. Um, it, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, it's going to be some of the alternatives for some of these companies who don't want to have to deal with non-market economies like China. You know, it's hard for a lot of us that, especially when we witnessed the fall of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War, uh, wrapping our heads around seeing Vietnam as a partner. Uh, but you're, what you talk about a lot is lowering the trade barriers to create greater economic freedom. Absolutely. And, and not just with Vietnam. I, I know it can be contentious. But, you know, even with our, our friends and partners, that's, that's the essence of the quad itself is, uh, you know, we still have a lot of barriers to trade and investment between just, you know, with the, with the Australians, with the Japanese, and with the Indians, particularly the Indians. Um, it's one of the reasons to their own detriment why India has not really succeeded as a economic competitor to China is because of some of the regulatory barriers that they have domestically, some of the opposition they just have toward foreign competition. And so if we can work to remove those um, amongst all the quad members, it'll not, it'll not just prosper uh, our individual countries, but the relationship and the economic strength of the quad. Because the quad right now is not insignificant. Uh, of, of these four countries, it, it's basically, if you think about it, uh, within these four countries, that's, that's a quarter of the world's trade. It's a quarter of the world's investment, all flowing through these four countries. And so it's, it's, I mean, it's significant. And to be able to maintain that and actually grow on top of that is, you know, you want to talk about competing with China. This is, this is the way to do it. Instituted these sanctions and tariffs on China, um, but what is the value of these tariffs during a, a recession? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I don't see any value uh, in, in the tariffs. I mean, I'm, I've been pretty skeptical of the effect that these tariffs could have since the beginning. I mean, I think if you look at the fact that it took three years to negotiate a deal shows that using tariffs as a negotiating tool isn't always effective. But if you think about the fact that Americans are the ones who generally pay these taxes, um, and to date, the you know the U.S. government has collected close to 53 billion uh, dollars in taxes uh, on on top of uh, the price of Chinese goods that Americans have bought, and I, I think you know if we're thinking about what we're trying to do now uh, as as we try and recover the state of the U.S. economy, as we try and help families, as we try and help businesses stay in business and keep people employed. You know, keeping that tax on top of their, uh, you know, production costs uh, is, is just, it, it's harmful in a way. And, and so I, I don't see really any value to it. I understand from maybe from the Trump administration's perspective, keeping those in place is necessary as a negotiating tool. But I think as an economic cost, it, it's far more heavy on uh, Americans than it is China. Well, you know, um, we've been watching what's been going on in Hong Kong, even though lamestream media is not telling us everything. Um, they just put in place uh, these new laws there that uh, 
prohibit the the ability for them to protest. Um, what could be the effect of that to the rest of the world? Um, that's I, I mean that's a big what if. I mean there's so many variables there. Um, I don't I don't actually see China clamping down. And, and what I mean by clamping down is I mean you know uh, tanks rolling in anything like that where it's it's a obvious uh, aggressive move uh i think the ccp is perfectly fine with the way that it's structured now where it almost seems like it's a battle between the hong kong people and the hong kong legislative council right that's i think that's what they would want is i think they want to undermine the governance or the the uh, the institution that exists within Hong Kong. So, and, and, and take a, take a, a step back and pretend like they're not involved, but what the government of the United States, what we have, what the U S government has already decided and, and rightfully so is that, you know what, that that's, we're not going to let that happen either. We've, we recognize that, uh, you know what, Hong Kong is no longer, the, the government of Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from Beijing and we're not going to, pretend like uh, you are your own governance system anymore. And with that, it's, it's going to be costly, but it's, it's effectively something that's been happening for years now as, as they see it. Um, and so the, the best we can do is, you know, obviously try and help the Hong Kong people where we can, uh, you know, there's, there's proposals to sanction Chinese officials uh, if, if we feel that they've been violating human rights, uh, which, you know, is, is certainly something that we, we should consider. Um, but as far as recognizing Hong Kong government as separate from Beijing, uh, it's, it's no longer on the table. Well, you know, China has so many, in so many different ways attempted to influence our politics and our economy. And there was a recent article in uh, Newsweek back on June 3rd by Rachel Bovard um, showing how China is trying to stoke the racial tensions in America and trying to upend the, everything by creating our economy again to once again tank because of fear of these tensions. Do you think they're going to succeed or are we going to see past that? I, I think we're going to get past it. I mean, any any foreign interference is, I mean, it's not new. It's it's consistently uh, a problem. You know, we we see these sort of tactics not from from most um, authoritarian regimes. I mean, we we see it from uh, Russians. We see it from Iranians. It's you know, it is a problem, and sometimes it, it can have disastrous effects. But not not you know, I've I've never seen it get to a point where it is. You know, just systemic, just it, it just harm, it just shuts down the economy. It doesn't get that far. You know, maybe there's fake accounts and fake posts uh, put on social media, and so and, and of course people read that and thinking it's true. But that's where it's important, you know, to you know talk with your friends, uh, talk with your neighbors, talk with your coworkers, and really figure out the truth. Um, it, it, it all comes, you know, one of the things I've, you know. When I, what I usually talk about in just general uh, cybersecurity is there's there's a lot that falls on the individual um, in making sure that your cyber hygiene is good, and and that includes being able to recognize uh, you know fake news from 
uh, what's legitimate uh, and, you know, what's, what's not. Well, they can also go to heritage.org and read your articles up there. Yeah. Riley, it has of been course. a lot of fun speaking with you. I wish we had more time, and maybe we'll have you back and spend a little more time with us. Yeah, of course. Please invite me back. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Check out Riley Walters over at heritage.org. God bless, Riley. Thank you for the hard work you do. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. That is all we have for the show for today. And uh, Curtis will be back next Friday, and we're starting to line up great guests for next Friday already. And I promise I will do my best to re-interview Gordon Chang. I mean, I messed that up big time. But I'll leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So until then, God bless and be safe out there. <laughs>